Alright, hello and welcome back to Skeptics and Seekers. Uh, this is going to be a solo podcast uh, of Dale's study session. We're going to be doing a new locus of study on the subject of Jesus' mythicism. So I was invited to go on the Right to Reason podcast to do a debate or a discussion on the subject of Jesus' mythicism, both with Robert Stanley and uh, another atheist podcaster named Kevin Francis, who's going to be taking up the uh, mythicist position. So yeah, look forward to that. We're scheduled to record that for next Sunday, so hopefully that'll be up uh, sometime next week for you guys to listen to. But in the meantime, um, obviously I've been doing a lot of research into the subject of Jesus' mythicism, and I figured why not do uh, an actual solo series going into great detail on all the evidence that we have for the uh, existence of the historical Jesus. So yeah, that's what this uh, series is going to be about. Uh, this is going to be part one. I'll, I'll post up parts you know, on an ad hoc basis whenever I get a chance or have the time to post something up. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to throw this uh, first part out here um, for you guys to consider uh, focusing on some of the extra biblical uh, references or secular non-Christian sources that mention Jesus. And we're going to be looking about four to five of them in this part, um, looking specifically at ancient uh, historians of the ancient Roman Empire uh, period of time there. So yeah, that's uh, we're going to be looking at Thallus and Flagon, uh, the Roman historian Cornelius Tacitus, uh, the Roman historian Suetonius, and the Jewish historian Flavius Josephus. Uh, so that's what you guys can uh, look forward to seeing. Let's, these are presented as positive evidences showing that um, a historical Jesus did in fact exist. Uh, however, uh, getting straight into it, before we actually look at the evidence itself, I think it's important to define our terms. What is it exact? What is my claim that I'm trying to prove here positively? And my positive claim is only that there a minimal historical Jesus existed historically. Um, so I'm not trying to prove that the Jesus of the Gospels and everything that he did in the Gospels is true and everything that the New Testament says uh, about Jesus is true or, or everything that Christians say about Jesus in later sources like with the Catholics and, and that sort of thing and their extra-biblical doctrines, orthodox doctrines and that sort of thing. I, I don't care about any of that. For, for the purposes of this show, I'm taking off my Christian hat, just putting on my hat, secular historian hat interested in truth and trying to prove that a minimal historical Jesus existed. So what do I mean by a minimal historical Jesus? Well, my definition is that there was a Jewish man named Jesus who served as the foundational basis for at least some of the later and subsequent Orthodox Christian beliefs, doctrines, and practices uh, about Jesus as outlined in the New Testament literature. Um, obviously, this is a minimal definition, so it can be expanded to include any and all details that the Christians want to affirm from the, from the Gospels uh, or the New Testament as a whole being biblically inerrant. Uh, it can include Catholic, later Catholic doctrines and, and stuff like that as well. So this is just a minimal. My goal is very minimal here to establish just that there was a guy named Jesus and he served as the foundational basis for the Orthodox Christian beliefs, doctrines, and practices as outlined in the New Testament literature. Um, okay, so let's get straight into our first uh, part of positive evidences. As I said, we're looking at the extra-biblical 
non-Christian sources that we have uh, attesting to Jesus. And uh, it's really interesting because with this, uh, some Christian apologists have mentioned, look, we, we have as many, about nine, between nine to 12, and some say even as high as 18 secular non-Christian sources and evidences, which attest to the existence of this minimal historical Jesus. Um, that date anywhere from between 30 AD, the time of Jesus' death, to 180 AD. So that's about a, a time frame of 150 years of the traditional date for Jesus' death. Um, all attesting that, yep, Jesus was a real guy. He's the founder of the Christian church movement, Orthodox Christian church movement, and he was, in fact, a historical figure. Uh, not only that, they go on to expound on various aspects about his life, his ministry, um, including his death and resurrection. So this is incredible historical evidence, as everyone will tell you. I mean, we, we don't have this kind of evidence for most historical figures that existed, even famous ones. I mean, yeah, pe people will try to bring up various comparisons and that sort of thing, but we'll, we'll save that. That'll be another positive argument. But yeah, so these are the sources that we're looking at, these 9 to 12, uh, possibly even up to 18 secular non-Christian sources. And as I said, I'm going to be starting to look at the actual his ancient historians as a category for uh, as the first category of these extra biblical sources. Um, and these include Greek historians, Roman historians, and uh, one Jewish historian, Josephus. Um, so there we have about four to five of this category of extra biblical source. And I first want to start with uh, really, it's two for the price of one, but we have Phallus and Flagon, or Flagon of Tralles. Um, so these were two historians who lived during the Roman Empire. They were Greek historians, so they, they wrote Hellenistic histories as opposed to Roman histories, like Suetonius or, or Tacitus. So there is a difference there. Um, now with uh, Phallus, he wrote uh, uh, what he called histories. Um, and we ha he gives us a reference to Jesus apparently in his third volume or third book. Uh, we're not sure where exactly there. And he wrote his book, according to Christian apologists, he wrote his book in about 52 to 55 AD. Um, so that's incredible. This would be the earliest source that we have uh, attesting to Jesus, even earlier than the Gospels, even earlier than um, much of Paul's letters. So yeah, that if this is true, that would be incredible evidence there. Um, and then with Phlegon, he wrote what uh, is called Chronicles. Um, he wrote about 16 books, but in book 13 or 14, again, we're not exactly sure where, um, he, again, he also talks about Jesus as well. Um, and his works are dated about 120 to 140 AD. So again, within the 180 AD timeframe there. Um, so yeah, let's just quickly address who these people were. Um, so again, as I said, Thallus was a Greek uh, historian living in the Roman Empire. According to Christian apologists, he, he was actually an eyewitness or could have been an eyewitness to what he records because he uh, basically wrote a history of the Eastern Mediterranean world uh, from the time of the Trojan War, so that's around 1200 BC, uh, until up until his own time, uh, again, uh, around 52 to 55 AD. Now, in terms of the dating,
Blaken's work uh, is pretty uncontroversial in terms of its, its being dated to the mid-2nd century, uh, you know, sometime between 120 to 140 AD, with most scholars favoring the latter, the 140 AD mark. However, with Thallus, his da the dating of his work is a lot more controversial. Some scholars, in terms of when it was when it dates from, so we have various mentions of Thallus, um, so that about three. So one is from a guy named Julius Africanus, who we'll learn a little bit more about later on. However, in terms of dating, uh, we have two uh, other people that mention Thallus that we get this date from. So the first is from Eusebius, the early Christian church father and father of modern church history, uh, writing in the fourth century AD. And his name is Eusebius. So he wrote his own church history he says this about Thales, that he wrote his history in Greek, that's Koine Greek, the common Greek, uh, and that it was a summary from the fall of Troy, 1200 BC, until the 167th Olympiad. For those that don't know, the Olympiad dating system, basically the ancient Greeks held Olympics every four years. So an Olympiad is a period of every four years since the beginning of the, the first Olympics that took place in ancient uh, Olympia in Greece. Um, so the 167th Olympiad would translate to be 112 to 109 BC. Um, now obviously, what? Uh, well that's a problem then. Well if, it, if this is the work that's been attributed uh, that we're going to be using, um, that dates before Jesus. So how can you record anything about Jesus? And in the first place, some critical scholars have, have um, come up with, oh, well, okay, well, this Eusebius isn't talking about the same historical work. He wrote another historical work, uh, and that did go cover more up until the time of Jesus and that sort of thing. Um, but this doesn't work. Most scholars reject it. Um, Richard Carrier himself, he was the one who first sort of played with this and advanced this back in 1999. Uh, and then he later on realized that's complete rubbish, uh, that's not true. Uh, it, is the, it is, in fact, the same work. Um, so, again, it, we asked, well, if, if his history only covered the period up to 109 BC, how could he talk about Jesus? And what most scholars have recognized is there's a textual corruption here in the date. Um, and they'll say, well, actually, it should be, instead of 167th Olympiad, it should be the 217th. Olympiad, because if you just change a couple of the Greek characters, you get 217 as opposed to 167, and that will bring us right up into the 28 to 33 AD time frame. Um, beautiful. That's that's Jesus. That's what we needed. However, Richard Carrier, I, I think, is correct in saying, yeah, but this is just speculation on, on our part, it, and there there are other grammatical corruptions which are even easier to make, such as if it were referring to the 217th Olympiad, which is the years 89 to 92 AD, um, or uh, he even it's even possible uh, to go as far as saying it was the 227th or 237th Olympiads, which basically put the date uh, somewhere at 100, ending in 132 AD, or ending in 172 AD. And Carrier makes an argument, I'll, I'll link to his article, that these textual corruptions are actually more probable uh, mistakes to make. 
um, then saying it dates back to the 52 um, AD or 207th Olympiad date. And I, I think he argues pretty convincingly here, at least in, in the sense that I don't think we can conclude when it was dated. So yeah, we, we have to be in, in arguing our positive case, we have to give it to the skeptic. It could be as late as 172 AD. Uh, when Thallus wrote, and we can't prove it either way. And and it could be any date, really. I mean, if it's a total corruption of this date, it could be any date. Um, but yeah, I, I think the most probable options is it was a slight textual mistake or error. Um, and as such, it could be any tie. It could be the 207th Olympiad, which is 52 AD. It could also be 217th Olympiad, ending in 92 AD, uh, or even the 227th or 237th Olympiads, uh, ending in the second century, but still within our 180 AD time frame. Um, now, it's important to note that we know for a fact it does date before 180 AD because it's referenced um, in, an, in an author author's works that is known to have been written in 180 AD. So that is the end of the line. 172 AD, based on the Olympiads, uh, is probably the most likely latest date that we have for Thales's works. Now, uh, just one thing to mention in terms of the date. Um, sometimes you'll hear Christian apologists uh, say that, well, uh, Thales is actually mentioned in Josephus. And this would put, uh, you know, at least... Uh, at the latest, put Thallus's works to be have written in the first century, 92 AD. Let's take that Olympiad instead. Uh, so sometime between 52 and 92 AD, because Josephus uh, tells us that uh, Thallus wrote, uh, Thallus uh, existed before he wrote his histories in the antiquities of the Jews. So yeah, Josephus tells us about uh, a guy named Thallus who was a Samaritan freedman. He was freed by the emperor Tiberius and worked with him so he had access um, to all the you know resources he would have needed and that sort of thing. Uh, he was from Samaria, so that's the region in the east, um, and makes sense from where he would be a hist historian of Eastern Mediterranean or Syrian affairs. And this is, this is said to prove, well, he couldn't be from the second century, he's still from the first century, even if at latest you put him around 92 AD. But the problem is, I don't think we can prove, Christians go too far in using this as evidence. It's possible, but it's, we can't prove that Josephus is talking about um, Thalos, uh, that we're interested here, the historian. So number one, in the first place, the word Thalos isn't anywhere in Josephus. It doesn't exist in any early extant manuscripts of Josephus um, until, the, uh, until a scholar really just put it in by speculation. Uh, or conjecture is, is what the scholar says. His, his name was Hudson, and it first appears in the year 1720. Um, so this this quote where jo that we're talking about is the Antiquities of the Jews, Book 18, Chapter 167. Um, but yeah, the, the word thalos just isn't there. It's actually allos in the original Greek from the early manuscripts. The thalos just doesn't occur until 1720, so that's problematic. Um, also, it doesn't mention anything about this Thallus um, writing a literary work or writing a history as an imperial freedman or, any, or anything like that. So again, again, it's and Thallus was a very common name at the time. So 
yeah, I think that Christian apologists are reading reading things into this text and wanting to connect the two thaluses together. But um, while it makes sense, it, it they fit. It, it's certainly a plausible suggestion that they're one and the same. I don't think that we can meet our burden of proof in proving yes, the thallus, the alleged thallus or allos that Josephus talks about is in fact the thallus. Um, the historian that Eusebius and Julius Africanus talk about. Um, so yeah, that's that's it in terms of the uh, debate, the dating issue. Um, in terms of Flagan, he was also a Greek historian, wrote a Hellenistic history. Um, he was uh, he was actually a freedman. He was freed by the Emperor Hadrian uh, in the second century A.D. He was from a place called Tralles. We we know about him. He he's quoted by Julius Africanus. Um, and, and several other later Christians. Eusebius talks about him. Origin of Alexandria uh, talks about him and quotes from him as well. Um, now, Flagan was someone who, he wasn't a totally reliable historian. He got details wrong. Origin tells us that he mixed up details about Jesus and, and thought that things that Peter did uh, were things that Jesus did. Uh, so he does get things wrong. Um, and he has a fondness for fantastic stories. So being from the second century, um, it wouldn't be surprising to find him copying from from Christian literature um, or, or Christian hearing secondhand testimony or hearsay and recording that in his works. Um, so yeah, that's uh, who we're talking about and when they wrote. Now the first major problem that we're going to encounter here uh, is that well, uh, what exactly did they say? And the truth is, we don't know, because their works haven't survived. Uh, they're totally lost in the modern world. We, we don't have any extant manuscripts, or let alone the original autographs, of what Thallus and Phlegon said. They're only preserved through quotations uh, of later Christian historians and authors, like Eusebius, or, or that sort of thing. So they you know, that's that's kind of a problem. We, we don't know exactly what these historians themselves said, but we only have a quote, the earliest of which is preserved in a Christian, the Christian historian Julius Africanus, or Sextus Julius Africanus. And that's where we get our first quote uh, from them talking about Jesus. So let's just see what Julius Africanus says here, uh, quoting them. The quote that we get from Julius Africanus can be is um, quoted by Christian apologists as, as this. So, on the whole world there pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. So, in context, he's, uh, Julius Africanus tells us this is within the context of uh, Jesus' resurrection or crucifixion. Sorry. Um, so, so continuing on. This darkness, Thallus, in the third book of his history, calls, as appears to me without reason, an eclipse of the sun. For the Hebrews celebrate the Passover on the fourteenth day, according to the moon, and the passion of our Savior falls on the day before the Passover. But an eclipse of the sun takes place only when the moon comes under the sun. Uh, and it cannot happen at any other time but in the interval between the first day of the new moon and the last day of an old of the old, that is, at their junction. How then should an eclipse be supposed to happen when the moon is almost diametrically opposite of the sun? 
Let opinion pass, however, let it carry the majority with it, and let this portent of the world be deemed an eclipse of the sun, like others a portent only to the eye. Um, so, so that's the part about Thales. So he's obviously addressing, um, you know, the Matthew chapter 27, and it's also in the Synoptic Gospels, Mark and Luke, talking about at the time of Jesus' crucifixion, there was this darkness uh, and an earthquake in Judea and, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, he, he's trying to say, look, that Thales attests to it, and he tries to explain this as an eclipse of the sun, but that's scientifically impossible. Uh, therefore, the, the implication is it must have been a supernatural portent from God. Um, so, so, yeah, Julius Africanus goes on to mention Phlegon here. Phlegon records that in the time of Tiberius Caesar at full moon, there was a full eclipse of the sun from the sixth hour to the ninth. Reminds me of the Gospels. Uh, manifestly, that one of which we speak. But what has an eclipse in common with an earthquake, the rending of rocks, and the resurrection of the dead, and so great a perturbation throughout the universe or the world? Surely no such event as this is recorded for a long period. Okay, so, so that's what Julius Africanus um, claimed Thallus and Phlegon said as an early church father uh, and church historian. Not only that, we also have a quote about Phlegon, not Thallus, but just Phlegon, from the early church father Origen of Alexandria, and he wrote around the same time. Um, against This comes from his book Against Celsus. Um, it's uh, around 248 AD, and, and Julius Africanus wrote his work or history of the church from creation up to his time around 220 to 221 AD. So Origen, writing about 20 years after Africanus, um, writes, quote-unquote, quote Now Phlegon, in the 13th or 14th book, I think, of his Chronicles, not only ascribed to Jesus a knowledge of future events, uh, although falling into confusion about some things which refer to Peter as if they referred to Jesus, but also testified the result corresponded to his predictions. He referred to a description by Phlegon of an eclipse accompanied by earthquakes during the reign of Tiberius, that there was the quote-unquote greatest eclipse of the sun, and that it became night in the sixth hour of the day, which is noon our time, uh, so that the stars even appeared in the heavens. There was a great earthquake in Bithynia, and many things were overturned in Nicaea. Um, okay, so this is what we're talking about. This is this is obviously proves that a minimal historical Jesus existed. It also confirms uh, that certain gospel events in the Synoptic Gospels, such as the darkness, uh, the rising of the dead, uh, you know, those rising of the saints, and earthquakes that rended the rocks uh, or split the rocks and that sort of thing, all happened. Uh, and this is what we get from Thallus and Phlegon through the quotations of Julius Africanus and Origin of Alexandria. Uh, and later on, Eusebius also quotes them, as we'll find out. Um, so let's um, focus now. So since our earliest source that quotes these guys is uh, Julius Africanus, uh, you know, a later Christian writing in about 220, 221 AD, what do we know about Julius Africanus? Is he a reliable Christian historian. Obviously, he was Christian, so he would have bias. Um, what are some things that we can know about this guy to, to determine if he's reliable? Well, in the first place, just general information, he was a native of Jerusalem. Um, he socialized with people, King Abgar IV of Edessa, 
Now, if, uh, you'll remember from the Shroud series, the King of Edessa was the first king in human history to convert to Christianity official and have the official religion of his of his city be Christianity. Um, also, uh, Julius Africanus, he traveled widely. He visited Ararat, for example, in search of Noah's Ark. He visited the Dead Sea uh, and Jacob's Terebinth in Palestine. He traveled to Rome as an official embassy from Amos. Um, and at Rome, as part of this embassy, he so impressed the Emperor Alexander Severus that he was entrusted by the Emperor to set up the building of a public library at the Pantheon in Rome. And this is pre-Constantine, guys. This is a pagan emperor being so impressed with a Christian. So this is something of note. Um, he wrote several works uh, similar in content to Pliny's Natural History. Uh, they were dedicated to the emperor, of course. He did work in textual criticism. Um, of, of Greek works and Christian works, uh, including Homer, Homer's uh, writings and that sort of thing. Now, what's incredible is he was the first Christian in history to develop modern textual criticism. Uh, he employed some methods that modern textual critics uh, use today. Um, uh, also, so he, he used uh, evaluated manuscripts. He knew about various civic libraries on the old site of Jerusalem. Uh, what, what's important here, Africanus was the first Christian in all of history whose writings were not all concerned with his own Christian faith. Um, he was not, you know, unlike Origen, not, he, he wasn't first and foremost an ecclesiastic teacher. Um, he was a philosopher. He pursued his favorite studies um, and, and wrote histories, um, not just uh, histories regarding the faith, but also what he called, quote-unquote, profane history as well. Um, you know, later Christian historians were so impressed with this guy, they, they used him as their model in coming up with different methods of doing ancient and even later medieval historiography was based on his work and his different methods uh, of, of doing history. You know, the later Christian historian Eusebius was greatly influenced by this guy, and, and Eusebius is the father of modern church history. Um, he was also known, he was a student alongside Clement and Origen of Alexandria. Yeah, th this guy was scrupulously honest in his uh, critique of both pagan and Christians. Uh, he's famous for getting into a massive dispute with Origen of Alexandria on the history, historicity of the Book of Susanna, uh, which is um, an apocryphal book added on to the Book of Daniel. Uh, Catholics and, and Greek Orthodox, I think, uh, accept it. But yeah, he, he got into a dispute and proved through textual criticism, basically saying it was written in Greek and was not a part of the original Aramaic. So he provided that argument against Christians. He doesn't just blindly follow tradition because he's a Christian. So yeah, just as a modern, Dr. Robin Lane Fox is someone who's uh, looked at a lot into Julius Africanus as a secular scholar and historian. Uh, today, and he cites him as the best educated dual culture products of his day, the best. Um, so, so yeah, this, I think when it comes to the question of was Julius qualified as an ancient historian, you're darn tootin' he was. I mean, number one, he has the background to lead us believe that he has the requisite skills, resources, and access to information to do the history. Uh, as I said, he traveled widely. He was a favorite of the emperor, giving him access to rare and privileged info. He built an imperial library in Rome, uh, giving him access to the sources and materials he needed. 
He had skills in textual criticism before anybody else did. Uh, he employed semi-scientific approaches, so multiple approaches to doing history. I think he was qualified to be uh, an ancient historian. And secondly, subsequent historians uh, all used him, as I said. But yeah, we, we have several examples where he demonstrates his methodology is reliable as a historian. Okay, so, so this leads into a, a quick discussion of the problems, just, just based on the, the ancient evidence alone here. Um, so in the first place, with respect, let, let's pretend Julius Africanus, he, since he's reliable, he did get, quote, Thallus and Flagon correctly. Um, again, we don't have their writings, so we don't know if uh, Julius Africanus is doing any editing or connecting any dots, which was common ancient historiographical practice back then. Does Thallus himself talk about Jesus? Um, does, Flagon, does Flagon mention Jesus? Um, and with Flagon, I think we can say that he did because we have multiple sources saying that he linked it to Jesus and he's in the second century and, and would have been interested in that sort of thing. But with Thallus especially, we just have no idea what he said. Um, and in fact, it seems that the evidence points to the fact that he, he didn't link or talk about Jesus at all. Um, it, it seems like what's going on is he mostly just talked about an earthquake uh, as well that happened in Bithynia because Eusebius also quotes the same thing. And he was familiar with Julius Africanus and Thallus. He, taught, he explicitly says he uses Thallus, his works, which weren't lost at that time as a source. And he never talks about, he never gives this quote that we get from Africanus. Instead, he just talks about Thallus. Uh, mentioning about earthquakes in Bithynia, which is Turkey, not Judea, um, and you know the rocks being split in that region and that sort of thing, and and an eclipse of the sun, which he doesn't give a location for. Um, now, the only coincidence is that well, this just happens to occur in the time same time uh, that Jesus was crucified in the reign of Tiberius. So yeah, it, it's hard to we can't prove whether they themselves talk about a historical Jesus as opposed to just these random events and Julius Africanus or later Christians connect the dots and say, oh, this, this, is the, this is the eclipse that the Gospels are talking about. Look, Thallus is talking about it. Um, he's talking about Jesus' crucifixion and that sort of thing. Uh, or if Thallus himself actually links these events to the crucifixion of Jesus and therefore talks about a historical Jesus. Yeah, I, I personally just, I, even Gary Habermas, I've got to, mentions that this is a good point. Um, when he's talking about a mythicist, G.A. Wells, he says this, quote unquote, but Wells raises a fair question about this testimony. Julius Africanus only implies that Thallus linked the darkness to Jesus' crucifixion. But we are not specifically and explicitly told if Jesus is mentioned in Thallus's original history at all. Um, so this is obviously a, a problem that kind of eliminates Thallus's testimony as being important right there, um, or a proof that hit the historical Jesus existed on a balance of probabilities. I don't think we can use it. Um, Phlegon's a different story because we have Origen and other Christians that do, including Eusebius, that had other independent works and did say that he talked about Jesus. Uh, so I think it's more probable than not that Phlegon did talk about, did link this uh, earthquake at the time to Jesus. 
However, again, the, the problem is with the quotes we get from Origen and from Eusebius is that these events don't take place in Judea. Uh, they take place in Bithynia or Turkey. So it, it looks like later Christians have sort of mangled that up uh, in addition through Africanus and that sort of thing and, and linked these together. So, so yeah, the, these are the problems. Even taking things at face value, Africanus was, was quoting these guys properly and that sort of thing. Uh, it does seem like Julius Africanus and or possibly someone later linked Jesus' crucifixion to these events that the ancient Greek historians themselves did not. Um, so now another problem that comes up uh, here for interpretation is, is based on the text. Julius Africanus's works, we don't even know what he necessarily said because we don't have his, either the original autographs or even later manuscripts of his works that are extant today. So we don't even know what Julius Africanus said. Uh, we only have his works preserved to us uh, through a guy named George Sincellus. Uh, and he was writing in the around eight, eight, uh, 870 to 875 AD. He wrote a, a comprehensive history of the world where he adopted all the pagan historians and all the Christian historians and kind of made a universal history up to his day in the, in the 9th century AD. So in terms of textual transmission or the bibliographical text test, obviously that allows for a lot of corruption in the text. And in fact, we, we actually know that there, the quote that I gave is actually proven corrupted in terms of Flagon's uh, quote. That wasn't original to Julius Africanus and it it wasn't even, pro probably wasn't even original to George Sincellus. It, this was a textual corruption that came into uh, effect in the 10th century and even and expanded in the 12th century. A guy named Michael, he wrote, copied George Sincellus and that sort of thing and um, copied these quotes. And there's, there's expansion going on that even George Sincellus himself didn't talk about not again that the this will be mentioned in the sources so check out the sources i've got the textual transmission in detail from richard carrier and, and a scholar named jacoby and that sort of thing so yeah one, once again there are pro there are problems in the textual transmission uh, and we just don't have access to the to the manuscripts of the primary sources even in terms of the primary source julius africanus if you want to consider him. Um, that said, we, we do have the primary manu manuscript copies of Eusebius and Origen's works that mention this. Um, so yeah, in terms of this, what worth do I give this? It, just based on these problems alone, I don't think that we can say the we have proof from secular Greek histo historians during the Roman Empire that attest to Jesus through the eclipse and that sort of thing. My honest impression is that this fails as evidence and that what happened is Phlegon in the second century uh, and other historians, poss possibly Thallus, did talk about an eclipse uh, of the sun that took place during the time of Jesus' crucifixion and a massive earthquake which rent rocks and that sort of thing in Bethania, Turkey, uh, not necessarily in Judea. Um, that's a later textual uh, thing that happened in the medieval period and that's that's pretty much it and and possibly Julius Africanus uh, linked this to Jesus or other Christian authors linked this to Jesus 
possibly Flagan himself linked it to Jesus um, through hearing about the gospel stories or, or secondhand testimony or thirdhand testimony or something like that. Um, it's unlikely Flagan would have gotten it from Christians because he got details so wrong about Peter and that sort of thing um, and mixing up Peter for Jesus. So he's probably hearing it third hand from a pagan uh, or something like that, you know, street testimony, what they heard Christians saying. Yeah, I, I think in in total, we just have, in summarization, we just have to say that this evidence has too many holes and I'm not even going into some of the other problems that came up. I'm trying to keep it simple uh, that this, this evidence is possible, um, but it, it's, it's not proven on a balance of probabilities. And since I bear the burden of proof, I can't use Thallus or Flagon's quote in Julius Africanus and Origen as proof that a historical, minimal historical Jesus did in fact exist. Okay, so let's move on to our next uh, extra-biblical non-Christian uh, source from the ancient historian category. And this is uh, one of the most famous ancient Roman historians that that uh, Christian apologists like to use to prove that uh, minimal historical Jesus did in fact exist. And that is, of course, the writings from Cornelius Tacitus. Um, so who is Cornelius Tacitus? Um, well, he was uh, he's known as the greatest ancient Roman historian. So he wrote a Roman history rather than a Hellenistic history. Um, he, he wrote a multi -vol multiple volume work uh, detailing the history uh, called the Annals or Annals. Um, and this was written approximately 115 to 117 AD. Um, so, uh, yeah, that's sort of the three-year range. He, he died in the year 120 AD, so he, it wouldn't have been uh, written after that date. Uh, and he was born in around 52 to 55 AD, so obviously he would not be an eyewitness to Jesus or that sort of thing. Um, yeah, he, he wrote his multi-volume work around 115, 117 AD, towards the end of his life. He called these the histories or the annals. Uh, it covered the period for the annals, and that's that's the book that we're interested in for you know the proving the historical Jesus. Uh, so that covered the period from the first Roman emperor Augustus, uh, his death in around 14 A.D., up until the death of Nero in 68 A.D., and then his histories covers the period after Nero's death. Uh, until the death of Dom the Emperor Domitian in 96 AD. So it's it's obviously the annals that we're interested in for proving a historical Jesus that, that covered the period when Jesus was alive. Now, unlike the other uh, Thallus and Flagon, the great news is with Tacitus, his works, his primary works, have survived through extant manuscripts. Um, so we do have his actually primary literature that we can consult. Uh, we don't have to worry about preserving him through later Christians quoting his work uh, or, you know, get into textual issues that way. No, we, we actually have manuscript copies uh, of his work, primary literature. However, frustratingly, as with all ancient manuscripts, uh, much of his work has been lost, though. Uh, and unfortunately, we, we this includes the writings that cover the period from 29 AD to 33 AD when Jesus would have been crucified and you know the trial of Jesus where it would have been recorded there these haven't survived so you know darn it that would have been the, the best if we had that for proof that a historical Jesus existed 
but uh, that's, yeah, um, that said it's lost, so we, we don't have that. But we do actually have one uh, quote from Cornelius Tacitus, which does reference Jesus and is relevant for proving a uh, historical Jesus existed, according to Christian apologists. Uh, so this comes from Annals, Book 15, uh, 44, Chapter 44, where Tacitus mentions both Jesus and uh, Christians. Uh, during the reign of the Emperor Nero. Um, so he's talking about a time back in 64 AD after there was this great fire of Rome and it destroyed uh, about three quarters. Some, some say as high as half the city up to three quarters of, uh, of Rome was completely destroyed and went up in flames. And people were looking at Nero and blaming him and saying he did this on purpose because he wanted to build his palace and you know, he had his great pleasure lake and that sort of thing, which um, was subsequently destroyed by the Emperor Vespasian, and that's where we have the Colosseum today. Um, but, um, yeah, so, so what did Nero do in regards to this? He, he said, no, 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 it wasn't me. It was those Christians. And he started persecuting Christians quite satanically, I would say. Um, uh, you know, he was known as the Antichrist for crying out loud uh, at the time. So, yeah. Uh, so what is, what does Cornelius Tacitus say about Jesus and Christians in this context? Uh, the context of talking about the Emperor Nero placing the blame and using Christians as scapegoats uh, after 64 AD, after the great fire of Rome. So here's what he says, quote unquote, But not all the relief that could come from man, not all the bounties that the prince could bestow, nor all the atonements which could be presented to the gods availed to relieve the Emperor Nero from the infamy of being believed to have ordered the conflagration, the conflagration, the fire of Rome, the great fire of Rome. I don't know why I can't say the conflag... <laughs> um, the great fire of Rome, we'll leave it at that. Um, now, continue on. Hence, to suppress the rumor, Nero falsely charged with guilt and punished innocent Christians who were hated for their enormities by the populace. Christus, uh, spelled properly, Christ us, the founder of the name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, the procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. But the pernicious su superstition repressed for a time broke out again, not only through Judea, where the mischief originated, but through the city of Rome also, where all things hideous and shameful from every part of the world find their center and become popular. Accordingly, an arrest was first made of all who pleaded guilty upon their information. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted, not so much of the crime of firing the city, uh, as for the hatred against, as for their hatred against mankind. So that that's the quote. Uh, it's a nice quick and easy single quote. This is actually preserved, so in Cornelius Tacitus's own writings in manuscript form. Um, so yeah, this looks like it's great evidence. This proves that there was a historical Jesus uh, who was killed and put to death by Pontius Pilate. Gospels confirmed. During the reign of Tiberius, Gospels confirmed. The Christian belief is said to have sprung up in Judea. It was suppressed for a little bit, and then it broke out again all over the world, including in the city of Rome itself. Gospels and Acts confirmed. Um, so yeah, this looks like great evidence on the face of it. Now, there is one caveat that I just want to mention that was an objection brought up uh, from my skeptical co-host, David Johnson, when I was going over the evidence with him. So 
in the first place, uh, another aspect here is uh, confirming the Gospels is that Christ Christus was the founder of the Christian movement. Um, great Gospels confirmed. Uh, but my skeptical co-host David Johnson brings up the fact, yeah, but look, it it's uses the name Christus. It doesn't use, there's no mention of a Jesus there. And remember, you're trying to prove the minimal historical Jesus. There's no Jesus. Um, so, yes, in, in the first place, it's true. He doesn't mention the name, the proper name, Jesus. And it wouldn't have made sense for, for him to do that. And we'll, we'll get into, that's sort of an objection that I'll get into in a, in a bit. But I just want to say, for the sake of argument's sake, it's totally irrelevant against mythicists. I mean, who cares that whether you get the name or not, uh, I can get the name Jesus as part of a cumulative case because we know that the Christians said their founder was Jesus Christ and that sort of thing. So when you bring in supplement, supplemental evidences from the Christians or other uh, pagan and, and Jewish sources, then you can find out this Christus was named Jesus and he was the founder of the early Christian church movement. Um, but it's it's enough against the mythicist, even if we don't get Jesus' name from Cornelius Tacitus in isolation, we still get a historical person who is known as Christus, who founded the Christian movement and was executed historically by Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius. Um, so I don't even care if you'll give me a name. This disproves and destroys the mythicist uh, and falsifies it, if true. Um, if it is, in fact, a good quote, good evidence, um, yeah, this proves that there was a historical guy who founded all of the Christians and was the, the basis. And we can find out whether his name was Bob or Jesus from, from other sources and a, a cumulative case. But yeah, I just wanted to, to mention that aspect that uh, my skeptical co-host brought up, and he's right. It doesn't mention the name Jesus. It calls him Christus. Totally irrelevant, though. It's, it's, it still destroys mythicism. Um, and the idea of mythicists and that sort of thing. So, yeah, let's let's first uh, start the other way, the opposite way around from the the way I try, I approach Thallus and Phlegon. Let let's look at the textual history, and do a textual analysis of Tacitus's writings of, of this annals. So, in the first place, today, pretty much no one with a functioning brain, uh, whether mythicist or or conservative, fundamental, Baptist, uh, Christian, nobody denies that Cornelius Tacitus actually wrote the annals as a whole. You know, no one claims it's a forgery. You're, you're laughed at and looked upon as ridiculous if you even suggest such a thing. But this wasn't always the case. There there were some radical skeptics in the, the 18th century, starting around 1775 AD, up until the 19th century, who did actually try to argue, no, the, the entirety of Tacitus, that's all a Christian forgery pretending to be Tacitus. And according to a uh, Tacitine scholar, Dr. C.W. Mendel, one of the world's experts in Tacitus, since the year 1775, there have been at least six attempts to discredit the works of Tacitus um, as complete forgeries. So, yeah, the, these include, I guess, the, fir the first attempt was originated with Voltaire, the atheist, radical atheist. And yeah, they, they took, you know, various positions. John Wilson, uh, back in 1878, uh, came up with uh, an idea that all the works were forged uh, starting in the 15th century and that sort of thing. In 1890, uh, there was another one. Um, even as late as 1920, a guy named Leo Wiener 
Uh, he was the last guy uh, to come up with this. He, he wrote his book Tacitus, Germania and Other Forgeries. Um, and his, his last attempt was sort of in vain to prove by a, a really a bewildering display of linguistic fireworks that the Germania, um, by implication the other works of Tacitus, including the, the um, annals, were, were all forgeries made after Arabic influence uh, had extended into Europe. But yeah, suffice to say, everyone with the PhD today laughs at these guys and says uh, they're wrong and they're, they're ridiculous. In the first place, the, the reason for this is most of these people were living, were basically ignorant. Um, you know, they lived at a time where we didn't have the same evidence that modern scholars do. Um, so that there was a bit of a gap in around the 1400s, by, um, whereby a guy named Poggio Bracciolone, um, and they try to say it in the 1400s, there is this brand new thing that came about, um, this Tacitus, uh, which is a Christian forgery, was written around this time. And that, that's what a lot of these um, radical skeptics about Tacitus as a whole try to argue for. Um, but it's it's scientifically proven, or rather archaeologically proven, that that is wrong. And this is why everyone laughs at these guys, because they just don't know what they're talking about. Um, so, you know, we, we also have quotes uh, from people dating back to the 400s AD, quoting the Tacitus works exactly as we have it uh, today. So, you know, we, we have Sulpicius Severus of Aquitaine, and he actually quotes the specific passage, 1544, uh, as well as other passages, 1537 and that sort of thing, that we're interested in. Um, but there's others as well that quote other parts of Tacitus's history. Uh, we have manuscripts that predate, so it's archaeologically proven that it, it this version of Tacitus as a whole that we have did not just come about in the 1400s, it, it predates that by centuries, going back to the ancient world, and this is proven. You can see it with your own eyeballs, and I'll, I'll provide a source detailing all the manuscripts that we have uh, as well. There's, there's links, you can see it with your own eyes if you can read other languages. Um, and yeah, as I said, it, it, we have quotes of Tacitus exactly like what we have um, as far back as the 400s AD. Um, including the specific passage, 1544, that talks about Jesus. So, um, yeah, this is just complete rubbish, and, and it's wrong. Um, a second major reason why people laugh at these guys is because it's absurd. What motivation? A Christian would have no motivation to forge a writing of Tacitus. Just, you know, all of the writings that we have extant today, in the year 1427, to, you know, basically it's very... Tacitus hates Christians and he hates Jews, and this is obvious in his writings. It's very anti-Christian. No Christian would write that. They would have no motivation for writing that just to get one quote out of everything else that's so not relevant for a Christian to care about. It's just pagan secular history. So yeah, there, there's no motivation on this on this front as well. It just doesn't make sense that a a Christian uh, would say this. So according to Dr. Mendel, the Tacitian scholar and world's expert uh, that I mentioned before, here's what he says. According to Mendel, quote unquote, none of these writers uh, or radical skeptics have won general acceptance of their estimates of Tacitus. The extreme positions have been completely abandoned since the 1920s, and the general integrity of Tacitus has been archaeologically and historically vindicated. 
Um, so, and it's from Mendel that I get uh, get a list of all the people and archaeological proof that proves Tacitus's writings definitely go back in the form that we have to the ancient world. Um, so, so yeah, Tacitus as a, as a whole has been vindicated. But as I said, what what about uh, a more nuanced claim? And this is again rare, but there are some. I think Bob Price might do this. I'm not sure. I need to recheck that. But okay, well, maybe Tacitus in general is is vindicated. And yep, Tacitus wrote the annals on history and that sort of thing. But the specific text that talks about Jesus, that was a later Christian interpolation or forgery, that specific text. Um, so what can we say against that? Um, well, in the first place, uh, it would have to be a very ancient forgery, right? Because we have quotes going back to the 400s AD uh, for this specific text that talks about Jesus. So it's very, it would have to be an ancient forgery that's scientifically or archaeologically proven. 100%. However, in terms of an ancient interpolation, that's also improbable. And most Tacitian scholars all agree with me about this. They, they don't uh, think that this is a Christian interpolation. They say that's improbable. And they give the following reasons. So, so number one, in the first place, this specific 1544 text appears in every single known manuscript copy of the Annals. There are, there are none that uh, don't have this text. And that's one of the tests people look for to find out if there was an interpolation or textual corruption in the text. Um, although with this, we have to admit and be fair to the mythicists that we have very few copies of Tacitus and none of those manuscript copies date earlier than the 11th century. Um, so that's very late. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's just the nature of ancient history. Unfortunately, you know, everything dates from the 9th century to the medieval period sometime. However, also we have Tacitine experts like Dr. Henry Furneaux, and they've conclusively proven that this passage is in perfect Tacitian style, so that this is a linguistic argument. It's written in what's called quote-unquote Tacitian Latin. Um, so Tacitus has his own unique style, and in fact uh, Christians in the uh, 15th century and 16th century reading Tacitus, this was one of the things they critiqued him on and said, oh man, Tacitus sucks. He, he, he writes bad Latin. In addition for his um, anti-Christian bias, they also condemned him for writing bad Latin, uh, as they called it. Obviously, it wasn't bad at his time, but for them, they considered it undeveloped or primitive Latin. And all scholars, every single one, there are zero today that um, disagree with this. It's universally accepted, including by mythicist Richard Carrier, G.A. Wells, all admit this. It's, it's conclusive. Tacitus wrote 1544, uh, as well as his book, The Annals as a Whole. Um, so yeah, this another thing here is that the anti-Christian tone or bias in this particular passage is so strong it's extremely unlikely. There's no motivation that a later Christian would have written this at all. And as I said to you, I, the Tacitian polemic against Christians is so strong that this was one of the two factors that Tacitus was condemned by Christians in the 16th century. They, they, he got his bad Latin uh, and he was an anti-Christian bigot. Um, so they, there's no motivation for a Christian, later Christian to interpolate this passage at all. Um, it just doesn't make sense. Um, and that's why the majority of Tacitian scholars, the world's experts that specialize in actual, actually studying Tacitus, 
not Bible scholars, not biased mythicists, uh, people with actual PhDs and who study the writings of Tacitus for their entire life's work all agree with me and say this text is not corrupted. It's perfect and it was written by Tacitus. Yeah, and obviously Jewish people wouldn't have interpolated it. They wouldn't have been in a in the position to insert this into medieval manuscripts in the 11th century or even in the ancient world they never had power during the diaspora and that sort of thing so that doesn't make sense they didn't have an opportunity to do it and pagans in the ancient world why would they interpolate something about jesus they would have no motivation about it so yeah it, it's confirmed this text was written by tacitus in 115 to 117 a.d um, there are no textual issues um, and most scholars, including mythicists, admit, yep, Tacitus wrote this. Now, there are some lay skeptics that I, I should mention here uh, who try to provide a counter to this. No one who's an actual scholar. Um, again, I'm, I'm not 100% about Bob Price, but I, I don't think he questions this either. I, I need to double check that. But, you know, some skept lay skeptics will advocate for an interpolation here and will say, well, look, no ancient early Christian church father quotes this passage in early church history. So this proves it must have been added later, because why would they pass up on quoting something about Jesus? They, they quoted Phlegon, um, they quoted Phallus, remember? But yeah, to, to counter this, look, no church father uh, would have willingly quoted such a negative reference to Jesus. They, this just proves that they didn't have the motivation not only to interpolate such a passage but they didn't even want to quote it because it was so negative and polemical against christianity and against jesus also tacitus we have to remember he was an elite an intellectual elite of his day he wrote for a very limited um, number of his peers audience you know a very limited audience people of his peers um so the the annals may not have gotten into the church's hands at an early date it probably took you know, at least a couple centuries, once Christians started coming into into more power, then they would have had access and started quoting this at, or that sort of thing. But the early Christians, um, they wouldn't have been able to get their hands on on the annals in the same way they might have been able to get their hands on Phlegon or, you know, another Greek historian Thallus's writings or, or that sort of thing. So, yeah, I think that the, ta the text has been proven historically to have been written by Tacitus in general. And this specific passage is not an interpolation or forgery. It was written by the hand of Tacitus himself. Um, so yeah, given, okay, great. So given that it's written by Cornelius Tacitus, does that prove that an historical Jesus actually did exist? What, what is the reliability of Cornelius Tacitus and or his sources? And, and let's, let's look at that and see what some objections might be in that sort of thing. So, Let's first start with Cornelius Tacitus himself, uh, his reliability or bias and that sort of thing. So in the first place, Tacitus as a Roman historian has been called the greatest, the best, absolute top-notch historian of ancient Rome by basically all modern scholars and historians. He, he's praised today for his moral integrity and essential goodness. And the Tacitian literature, again, scholars that actually study, these are Tacitian scholars, secular Tacitian scholars that study Tacitus and only Tacitus 365 days a year or something. That's an exaggeration, but uh, this is what they, this is what they specialize in. And they're full of praise for the accuracy, care, uh, critical capability, um, and just 
general trustworthiness of uh, Tacitus and his works. So um, I've compiled a list of about nine Tacitian scholars, secular Tacitian, non-Christian. They're not Bible scholars. They're not Christian apologists. These are Tacitian scholars who all back me up in saying that Tacitus, my goodness, this guy is where it's at. He's a reliable historian. You can trust what this guy says in general in, in accordance with the ancient historiographical method. So in the first place, I have a quote from Dr. Ronald Syme from Oxford. Um, he's regarded as one of the foremost Tacitine scholars in the world. And he says this, quote unquote, the prime quality of Cornelius Tacitus is distrust. He was no stranger to industrious investigation and his diligence of investigating matters was exemplary. Another Tacitine scholar, Dr. Ronald H. Martin, he mentions this, quote-unquote, it is clear then that Tacitus read widely and that the idea that he was an uncritical follower of a single source or hearsay is quite untenable. Um, we also have Dr. Michael Grant, you know, responding to, in context, he was responding to someone saying Tacitus was biased and showed an unfair selectivity and that sort of thing. He, he says, so sure, all ancient historians did utilize selective measures in the material they presented. However, Tacitus was, quote-unquote, careful to contrast what had been handed down orally with, the literary, with literary tradition. There is no doubt, zero doubt, that Tacitus took a great deal of care in selecting his material. Um, another scholar, Dr. Tacitian scholar, Dr. Ronald Meller, says, quote-unquote, Tacitus does not slavishly follow, as some of his Roman predecessors did, the vagaries of his sources. And if research is the consultation and evaluate, uh, is the consultation and evaluation of sources, there can be little doubt that Tacitus engaged in serious research. Though it is not often apparent in the smooth flow of his narrative, Tacitus consulted both obscure and obvious sources, and he distinguishes, always, um, unexceptionally, distinguishes fact from rumor with a scrupulosity uh, that is rare in ancient historians. Um, here's another one. Dr. Kenneth Wellesley uh, says, quote-unquote, very seldom does Tacitus show... Uh, show to be false to fact, and archaeology has shown that only once or twice is Tacitus found to be guilty of a small slip. This is incredible. Uh, I'll leave you with one last one. Another Tacitine, secular Tacitine scholar, Dr. Arnaldo Mamagliano, and he says, look, Tacitus was, quote-unquote, not, not a researcher in the modern sense, of course. He nevertheless says that he was a writer whose reliability cannot be seriously questioned. Um, so Arnaldo says that he's uh, a writer whose reliability cannot be seriously questioned. Um, so yeah, I think uh, this is incredible. This proves uh, Tacitus is someone that you should just believe. Uh, he gets the benefit of the doubt when he reports facts he's always with the exception of one or two minor exceptions always proven to be accurate in what he reports but there are there have been some skeptical counters to this so it's obvious that tacitus was an ancient historian as great as he is he's never going to be up to the 
standards of a modern historian with modern historiography. And as such, Tacitus had an obvious bias. Um, he's a biased ancient historian, and he manipulated his data. He, he did use ancient historiographical techniques. He used selection techniques of his data and what was important for him to make to make points, right? That, um, as we said, um, you know, Craig Keener told us ancient historians uh, used history to provide edifying points, not just report historical data. Um, so Dr. Ronald Meller, the Tacitian scholar that I mentioned before, he notes that Tacitus uh, had special contempt for the lower classes, and he had a strong bias against Eastern religions, including Judaism and Christianity, as we already mentioned. Um, and sometimes this got the, the better of his judgment. It caused him to think they were unworthy of curiosity and research at times. He sometimes would accept a hodgepodge of truth and falsehood with little critical analysis on uh, anti-Semitic cliches um, at times. So, uh, yeah, I, that's sort of the first objection. Look, Tacitus, as great as he is, he's not, he's not perfect. He's not a modern historian. So... How would we respond to this? So, first of all, we, we note that all recorded history, both ancient and modern, is biased and manipulated history. And modern historians have to select what's important to report on. So, just because that there's an evident bias um, in the Jesus passage, specifically an anti-Christian bias, uh, that doesn't mean that Tacitus isn't still trustworthy in both in general and in this particular passage. Secondly, look, there's no indication that Tacitus's bias had any effect on the Jesus reference. Um, I mean, if it would have had any influence, it would be the opposite of the sort required in order to devalue the reference. Even Meller, Dr. Meller, admits there is no evidence that Tacitus invented or suppressed the facts in this regard. He did not, quote-unquote, change his details to fit his reconstruction of the past, but rather engaged in selective interpretation, as indeed all, do all historical writers. Um, another Tacitian scholar is Dr. Benario. He likewise observes, look, bias is an inevitable part of any ancient historical work. He notes Tacitus's bias against the Emperor Tiberius. Um, but even in these places, Tacitus has been proven to be reliable and is not intentionally fraudulent. He finishes off, as I said, with Tacitus presents an almost invariably accurate report, having been confirmed by both archaeology, epigraphical evidence, and other historical authors. Uh, Dr. Grant, another Tacitian scholar, similarly records Tacitus's interpretation of the facts, whether unconsciously or through deliberate fervent intention is often invidious, invidious, but the actual facts which he records are generally accurate. So yeah, yes, Tacitus had his biases and his biases were overt. He didn't hide them. You know, ancient historians didn't have a problem being explicit with their bias. Um, but still, Tacitus has proven despite his bias, it doesn't affect the general accuracy or reliability of the facts that he is reporting on, including the facts uh, about Jesus that we're talking about here. Another, a second skeptical uh, objection against Cornelius Tacitus's uh, thing is, um, you know, specifically related to, okay, Tacitus's focus and emphasis is not on Christians. Remember, I, I quoted Meller above. Uh, talking about how he hated uh, Christians, he hated Eastern religions and Jews. He thought 
thought they were a bunch of nutballs and uh, sometimes this caused him to be a bit careless in reporting you know anti-semitic slurs and stuff like that you know uh, Robert Dr. Robert Wilkins says this look Christianity is not a part of Tacitus's history except for the one reference in the annals he shows no interest in the new movement uh, when he when he does advert to Christians in the book it is not because he is interested in Christianity as such or aim to inform his readers about the new religion as for example he, he did in a lengthy discussion in another work the histories but because he wished to make a point about the extent of Nero's vanity and the magnitude of his vices and to display the crimes he committed against the Roman people. So to respond to this objection, I, th I think it has to be admitted. Um, look, yeah, that, that's absolutely correct. Tacitus was not interested in reporting details about Christianity. He could give two figs about it, um, just like he cared less about any Jews or Eastern religions in general. He, he viewed them with contempt. Uh, so that this wasn't an emphasis. The only reason he even mentions Christians here is because he wants to defame Nero. Um, so, so Robert Wilkin is correct, but that doesn't mean that Tacitus would have done sloppy work or reported uncritically, reported inaccurate details about Jesus. Because in the first place, we've already seen Tacitus's general character is he, he doesn't do this. Uh, he's very critical with his sources. Even we have one case where he doesn't even believe his friends. Uh, Pliny the Younger, or Pliny Secundus, in the Latin, Pliny the Second, was uh, giving him information, and he, he just wouldn't accept it uncritically. He said, this is complete rubbish. Uh, I mean, you're full of it. You need to check your brain or something, is what he told his own best buddy, Pliny, Pliny Secundus. Um, so, in general, this is improbable. Tacitus wouldn't have just taken information about this, even when he doesn't care about the people that he's investigating. It's, it's improbable that that would happen, even if there are a few exceptions where he reports slurs uncritically against Jews or Eastern religions or that sort of thing. Secondly, when it comes to Jesus specifically, we can prove that Tacitus and Christianity, Tacitus would actually have a special interest to investigate the origins of Christianity specifically. Um, so the first comes from the fact that um, there was a likely a cause for investigation because uh, right in Tacitus's own backyard, uh, in 95 AD in Rome, the emperor Domitian, uh, his niece Domitella, and her husband Flavius Clemens were actually accused of quote-unquote atheism related to quote-unquote being a carried away being carried away into jewish customs and by jewish customs here this is a, a an idiom meaning christianity it's not judaism uh that they're talking about here in the context of, of the quote uh and that's that's uncontroversial everyone admits that um you know i've got a scholar here dr bank who says look jewish custom referred to here is christianity that's uh undisputable uh, from the context of, of what they're talking about. So this would have given Tacitus a perfect motive to investigate this movement historically. It's affecting the emperor's family uh, relate, uh, and relatives. Um, so this, this would have spurred him to kind of look into what is this stuff all about. Um, also, secondly, Tacitus has a unique special interest in what he calls, quote-unquote, pretenders. So Jesus would have been a pretender, a king of the Jews, a 
the Messiah. And Tacitus has sort of a, a special interest in looking into pretenders in general, uh, especially pretenders who claim to have been risen from the dead. This is just his quirk. It, it's a quirk of his nature. This is what he likes to look into. Um, so this, these are two reasons that would have given Tacitus in particular special reason to investigate the origins of Christianity, in particular Jesus, to find out what, what, it's, what it's all about. Yeah, I, obviously since Tacitus is too good a historian not to look into the origin of a cult, especially one that is directly relevant to him and is impacting on the emperor's family, and the fact that Tacitus has this special interest in what he calls quote-unquote pretenders. Yeah, I think this lifts it out of the category. This isn't just, you know, Tacitus reporting uh, the latest insult against Jews or Eastern religions as being a bunch of maniacs and idiots uh, or whatever insult that was going around at the time. Uh, no, this relates to something he's actually interested in, something that's affecting the emperor's family and that he himself has a quirky interest in because it involves a pretender, someone who pretended to be risen from the dead, so he would want to look into it. Um, so yeah, that, that's how we would answer that objection. Another objection related to Tacitus' general reliability, basically the, the Tacitian scholar Dr. Ronald Meller that I mentioned before, he notes that Tacitus occasionally reported stories which were in fact false historically, but were only true in a literary sense or a moral sense. So remember, he's, he's in tune with ancient historiographical practice there. And he also, as we said with the anti-Jewish Semitic slurs, he also recorded, report, occasionally reported a rumor or a report that he knew was false. Um, so Meller gives this example. Look, when reporting Augustus's, the Emperor Augustus's trip to be reconciled, with his exiled grandson Agrippa, he alludes to a rumor that the emperor was killed by his wife, Livia, um, in order to prevent uh, Agrippa's reinstatement. So all the components of such a tale foreshadow the murder of Claudius by his wife Agrippina to allow her son Nero to succeed before the emperor reverted to his own son Britannicus. So yeah, Miller goes on to say, look, Tacitus's con Tacitus is content to use the rumors to besmirch, simply by association, both Livia and Tiberius, who, whatever their failings, never displayed, displayed the deranged malice of an Agrippina or a Nero. Um, it is good literature, but it is irresponsible history. And this is coming from Ronald Meller, one of those Tacitian world's experts and scholars that I was trying to say Tacitus is a great guy, and I was quoting him before. Um, in that regard. So, okay, well, how do I respond to this then? He, he reports things that he knows are false historically for a literary or moral purpose. So in the first place, there's no reason to think that the reference to Jesus specifically is one of these quote-unquote exceptions would give us that indication such as there are in the case of Agrippina and Nero and, and Tiberius and that sort of thing in Livia. And I've already noted that Tacitus's scruples and concern for accuracy were such that he always every exceptionally, exceptionally, shunlessly indicated when he reported rumors like this, and this proves the point, he calls this a rumor in the text. Um, and he always differentiates rumors from what is actual historical fact. And Tacitus reports the Jesus quotation as a historical fact. He doesn't say this is as is said by the Christians or as is rumored 
uh, to have occurred. Um, and, ta and Tacitus always, uh, he always differentiates rumor from historical fact. The Jesus passage is historical fact, according to Tacitus. Beyond this, uh, it can also be noted that, look, everything Tacitus reports has a moral context. Um, so applying this criteria would mean that everything in Tacitus's works are, are false. If you want to say, oh, whenever there's a moral context or lesson involved, uh, which is present in the Jesus narrative, there is that moral lesson that, that Tacitus is trying to get across, but that doesn't mean it's, it's false because he's got a moral context in everything he writes. Um, so yeah, that's a false way of doing it, uh, of looking at it. So yeah, that's how we respond to that objection there. Some uh, radical mythicists or skeptics might still say, but look, it, look, it's still possible. I hear everything that you're saying, but it's still possible that Annals 1544 about Jesus is an exception. It, it's unique in all of Tacitus's normal care that you've proven and everyone with a PhD that's a Tacitus scholar agrees with you on, Dale. Um, but, you know, it's, it's just... Look, the, the thing about Jesus, it's an incidental detail. It fulfills the criterion of uh, disinterest. Uh, it's an off-the-cuff comment about Jesus, whereas main interest is about Nero. So, you know, it, would, it wouldn't really be a strike against Tacitus' general reliability as an ancient historian. Um, according to the standards of ancient historiography, if he just makes one exception for Jesus. Um, so, see, so yeah, I, I think... In light of everything we've gone over, this is just ridiculous and can be dismissed as such uh, for the skeptic or the mythicist. They're just desperate trying to dismiss the evidence in any way they can if they say this. Uh, look, it's simply begging the question. You're, you're begging for an exception for the purpose uh, of a decided position supporting mythicism. Uh, despite the fact that we have uh, proven that Tacitus was generally reliable and went into exquisite, an exquisite amount of research uh, to research topics of interest for him, proving that he had at least two reasons why he would have had a special interest to investigate the origins of Christianity and Jesus in particular. It's, yeah, it just seems too convenient. This is just very improbable desperation on the part of skeptics. Uh, trying to grasp for any straw that they possibly can here. It just it just sounds ridiculous to go, look, yep, we admit Tacitus normally was accurate, normally checked things out scrupulously. He was the best of all mankind for centuries and millennia in terms of checking out the details. He had access to everything, but this is just an exception. This is the one exception for about Jesus. Uh, yeah, that's possible, but it's, it's extremely improbable. Um, so that, that just smacks of ad hoc desperation on the part of skeptics who want to beg the question against the existence of Jesus. So yeah, I, I think uh, that does it for, for this section on Cornelius Tacitus. So look, so far we've proven the text as a whole is not a forgery. Tacitus wrote that. Everyone with a PhD, all Tacitine scholars agree with me and disagree with any mythicists from the 19th and 18th centuries that think otherwise. And it's been scientifically proven through archaeology that those people are wrong. Secondly, the passage in particular, 1544 talking about Jesus, is not a forgery. It's not a later Christian interpolation. Tacitus wrote that, just like he wrote the entire work as a whole. Thirdly, Cornelius Tacitus himself was scrupulous and very reliable, extremely reliable. 
Um, so we can't say that he was just making things up or didn't exercise due caution um, when he was writing uh, and trying to distinguish rumors from historical facts. And when he said G Jesus died under Pontius Pilate under the reign of Tiberius as the founder of the Christians, that was a historical fact. He didn't identify that as a rumor. So he meant for us to go, yep, that happened. Um, but that brings us to the fourth area of investigation. And this is this is really the area that most mythicists today, uh, Richard Carrier, Bob Price, uh, all, all of the... Uh, David Johnson himself. Th this is really where they want to go. Okay, yep, I'll, I'll give you all of that. But Tacitus's sources, uh, what was the reliability of his sources, of where he's getting his information from? So maybe Tacitus was duped um, by an unreliable source of some kind. And typically that, that goes to, he got it from Christians, you know, hearing their testimony or hearing hearsay evidence and he just reported it as though it was historical fact um so again that he would have recorded he would have identified that as mere rumor given that he hates christians so that can be dismissed right away but we won't get into that yet uh we'll talk a little bit more about that but that's just one thing that we've already learned that would make you go i don't believe you um on against the mythicist uh type deal um but yeah let, let's get into this and look at the Tacitus's sources and what their reliability, what what those would have been, and what the reliability of them uh, would have been. Um, so we already know in general, Tacitus was extremely scrupulous um, in in critically evaluating all of his sources before he used them. So in in general, as I said, Tacitian scholars all agree with me on this, right? Uh, Dr. R Ronald Mendel says that, look, in Tacitus often quotes, uh, he'll quote from three divergent opinions from three different historians on a story involving Nero. He was concerned even about the minor historical details in this regard. Mendel further notes that uh, the Tacitus citation uh, of a fantastic story about one Drusus was based only on a persistent rumor. So again, he's distinguishing rumor from historical fact. Now, in the annals, in the particular in terms of the work with the paragraph uh, about Jesus in particular, Mendel cites, Dr. Mendel, uh, this Tacitus scholar, cites 30 instances where Tacitus uses specific phrases, quote unquote, to substantiate a statement or to present a statement for which he does not care to vouch. Mendel also notes that in books 11 through 16, remember uh, the Jesus passage is in book 15 of the Annals, Tacitus is specifically, quote-unquote, concerning himself with the evidence and source references even to a greater extent than he does in general in the earlier books. He relies on other historians. He uses a bronze inscription in 1114. He uses reports or memoirs for book 15. That's the same part where Jesus is mentioned. Uh, he uses personal testimonies in book 15. Uh, he cites physical evidence in book 1542, just two uh, chapters before the Jesus passage in 44. There are indications of searches for firsthand in book 1541 and written source evidence, source evidences um, to rely upon in recounting his history and what he reports as historical fact. Yeah, I, I really think that, look, this, this proves that the citation of Jesus uh, comes in the middle of one of Tacitus's most carefully documented works. 
for example, in, in reporting a conspiracy of, of Paizo to assassinate Nero. Tacitus acknowledges the difficulty of accurate knowledge for such conspiracies. Um, he indicates where his knowledge is uncertain and does not use even one of Pliny's, uh, his best buddy Pliny's quotes as positive evidence because he considers it to be wholly absurd. This is in book 1553. Remember I mentioned before that he, he calls his buddy, you're, you're out to lunch. Uh, this is what I was talking about. Um, so yeah, Tacitus was a very careful historian in terms of the sources, what he would trust, and he would, especially in the works where this citation of Jesus is mentioned, he would go out of his way to substantiate a statement as being not one that he is prepared to vouch. That doesn't happen with Jesus. He's wholeheartedly, this is fact. This is not a rumor. Believe this. Um, so that's that's the context that we have here in general. Um, but yeah, what in the first place, what, what sort of sources might uh, Tacitus have had to get his information about Jesus then? We, we can trust that he would have engaged in source criticism and would have been scrupulous in that regard. But who, who would have these sources might have been? Um, so one suggestion that we have in the first place is that maybe Tacitus used his best buddy, Pliny the Younger, or Pliny Secundus, um, and Pliny was an unreliable, secondhand, non-Christian source that Tacitus just blindly believed in this case about the Christian. And on the face of it, uh, this sounds plausible. I mean, uh, Tacitus was best buds. He was BFFs with Pliny the Younger, Pliny Secundus here. You know, they Tacitus sent his works to Pliny for criticism, um, and Tacitus himself even begged for the product, for the quote-unquote product of Pliny's pen on multiple occasions. And he, he even turned to Pliny for first-hand material for his history, for his history's book. So he did use Pliny as a source, and we know this for a fact. So was he just getting his information about the Christians, claims about Jesus uh, from Pliny the Younger, and just blindly believed whatever Pliny told him to believe and just wrote it down based on what Pliny said? Um, no, I don't, this is an improbable suggestion of the skeptic or mythicist. Uh, most mythicists don't believe this is the case. Um, so number one, in the first place, Tacitus didn't accept information from Pliny uncritically. He was critical of Pliny. I gave that quote in 1553 where he calls Pliny wholly absurd in the nonsense that he was spouting. And this is his, his best buddy he's calling um, so even with Pliny the Younger, someone who he's very friendly with, he, he won't just uncritically, mindlessly believe whatever he tells him to believe. He'll check it and call it out as horse manure if, if he doesn't uh, buy it. Also, we have in general, Tacitus is a very careful historian, so he would not just uh, trust a report of what the Christians told Pliny. Uh, he would carefully check the material to confirm if what they were telling Pliny was true or not based on what we know of Tacitus. And then finally, secondly, look, it, it doesn't make sense. Why, uh, Tacitus wouldn't have any need to go to Pliny to hear what the Christians are saying. He had more Christians in his own province of Asia, where he was the governor. So he could have gotten this information from the Christians directly. There was no need for him to go, hey, hey Pliny, what are the Christians telling you over there? What, you know, who's this Christus guy or something like that? He can just go to the Christians and say, and ask them himself if he wanted to do that. So yeah, I think the Pliny option is improbable. That's probably not what happened. And Tacitus had other sources 
uh, that he would have used to gain information about the Christians. Now here, here comes the main one. This is the one that most mythicists will use in a debate. And they'll, they'll say, yeah, well, look, as you said, Tacitus had access to lots of Christians in his province. So he probably got unreliable information from Christians uh, and just mindlessly wrote down whatever they told him to write down. Yeah, we uh, believe in Christus, who was uh, in Christ, uh, who was crucified by Pontius Pilate, blah, blah, blah. And he just, oh, okay, and wrote it down. In the first place, what we've learned from Tacitus is that's not true. He wouldn't have done that. He despised Christians. He would not just take what they say as at face value. And he had he would have identified it as rumor if this was the case, as opposed to historical fact. Um, he would have had occasion and motive to actually check into this because it's about a pretender uh, and the royal family was becoming converted by Christianity at some point. Um, the Emperor Domitian's niece, uh, Domitella. So, yeah, I think it's improbable, especially given the fact that it's so polemical against Christians and that sort of thing. I, I don't think that listening to what Christians themselves had to say was, was his only or even his main source that Tacitus would have uncritically or allowed to go in. There, there would have had to have been more involved for him to state as historical fact their founder, Christus, was crucified by Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius, um, and you know, his knowledge of the fact that this suppressed the rumor and then it broke out uh, once again outside of Judea. Um, plus, there's also the fact that Tacitus was motivated to look into Christianity because he had his own quirky interest in evaluating what he called pretenders. Um, now, as, as a way of a counter, a mythicist named G.A. Wells does provide three reasons as to, you know, he thinks this proves, no, Tacitus did in fact get his information from Christians. So the first one he, he brings up is Tacitus is in error. And this is unlike him, right? So he must have used, uncritically used a, a Christian source of ignorant lay Christians who didn't know what they're talking about. Um, and when he calls Pilate a procurator, in reality, that title didn't exist back in the day. Pilate was what was called a prefect. Um, so this proves Tacitus was, was unreliable here. He must have had an unreliable source who didn't know what they were talking about because that title, procurator, didn't come into effect until the second half of the first century AD. Now, the counter response to this is decisive. This is complete rubbish on the part of skeptics. Uh, no one with any knowledge at all in history believes this anymore. In the first place, uh, this error isn't taken... There are two, way, two ways we can counter this kind of objection. So number one, evidence, historical evidence actually proves and indicates that there was a certain fluidity in the usage of these terms. And number two, Tacitus may have been anachronizing on purpose, using titles uh, of the future so and imposing that on people of the past so they would know, oh, okay, he, he was a procurator. Procurator, that's the same as being a prefect back in time or something like that. So uh, first going to the first uh, objection here. So we need to understand what's the difference between these two titles. So a procurator, um, as the word implies, is, is uh, someone like a financial administrator who acted really as the emperor's personal agent, whereas a prefect was a military official. 
So, yeah, what, what evidence is there um, that there is this easy interchange um, or fluidity between the usage of these terms? And our uh, scholar here is John Meyer, um, an excellent biblical scholar. Um, and he says, look, quote, that in the quote-unquote backwater province of Judea, there is probably not much difference between the two roles. This assertion is backed up by literary evidence from Philo and Josephus, uh, because they were not consistent in the usage of these terms either. Josephus calls Pilate a procurator in Antiquities of the Jews, Book 18, 5 and 6. Um, the story about Pilate bringing images into Jerusalem. It is not, and it's, it's not been suggested, but we may wonder if, if like a, the, a backwater country like Judea or province, maybe Pilate even had both titles. Um, so it, it's actually not even a, a, a mix-up based on the fluidity there. So, you know, in practical terms, both procurators and prefix in Judea had the power to execute criminals who were not Roman citizens. So, yeah, practically in this context, that it's a difference that makes no difference. Um, <laughs> you know, same, same, but different type thing. Secondly, also, we have the, the point that Tacitus may have been using these terms like an anachronistic term for his own reason. The first reason is to avoid confusion for his modern listeners. So they would know exactly, oh, okay, same thing. So it means the same thing, but you're using the modern terminology. We do that all the time. Instead of calling people a seer, we call them prophets or something like that. The, the Bible itself does this. It's not a problem. Everybody does it. Not an error. And uh, we, we can cite inscriptional evidence that the position held by Pilate was called prefect, but procurator in the years 44 to 66 AD. Yeah, ta basically John Mayer will just say Tacitus is simply using the term that his readers will be most familiar with. And we, we know for a fact that Tacitus, it's proven that he does do this. He does use modern terminology. For example, instead of calling the person an emperor, he calls them an imperante. And Tacitus, as a senator, knew, 100% knew full well that was not the proper, proper title for past emperors. So yeah, that is fully plausible that this is what Tacitus is doing. Now, you may find these uh, explanations or defenses to be unbelievable. Um, okay, well, let me quote your good buddy, your own mythicist hero, Richard Carrier, who agrees 100% with me and not with the skeptic. Um, so Richard Carrier has expressed sympathy for the mythicist position, but now advocate, um, and he has stated, with regards to this procurator issue, quote-unquote, it seems evident from all the source material available that the post was always a prefecture and also a proctorship. proctorship. So it's, he's going for the both and position. Interesting, he was a prefect and a procurator at the same time. Pilate was almost certainly holding both posts simultaneously a practice that was likely established from the start when Judea was annexed in 6 AD by the Roman Empire. And since it is more insulting uh, to an elite and elitist like Tacitus and his readers to be a procurator, and even more insulting to be executed by one, it is likely Tacitus chose that office out of his well-known sense of malicious wit. Uh, remember I said he's got this bias against Jesus, right, and Christians, so he's He's sticking it to Jesus by saying, you were crucified by a procurator, not a prefect, but a procurator. And, and that's a 
even bigger insult, apparently. Um, Carrier goes on, quote unquote, Tacitus was also a routine employer of veratio. Um, so deliberately seeking non-standard ways of saying things. And this is one of the several markers of that tac Tacitian style that everyone sees in this um, verse and proves that Tacitus himself actually wrote it, and it's not a Christian interpolation. Uh, finally, Carrier says, so there is nothing unusual about his choice of the word procurator here. Skeptics, utter failure. And every Tacitian scholar, including mythicists like Richard Carrier, agree with me. Um, so, yeah, you just need to educate yourself a little bit better on uh, that objection there. Um, okay, well, here's another objection that G.A. Wells tries to point out and says, well, this proves he got his info from Christians. Tacitus refers to Jesus as Christus or Christ and not by a proper name. Remember David Johnson in the beginning brought that up thinking it, it you know, was devastating to the, the historicist case or something when it wasn't. Um, so he'll um, the, the point here, G.A. Wells will say, well, this probably shows he did not consult official records because he would have had a proper name if that were the case. Well, uh, in terms of this objection, uh, we could respond by saying, look, once again, Tacitus used the language that would be most familiar to his readers, and they would know Jesus as the Christ, as Christ of the Christians, as opposed to giving his no proper name Jesus Christ or or Christ Jesus, uh, which would be more like if he got his information from Christians and just blindly believed unreliable Christian sources, that's what the lay Christians would have called him. They would have called him the intimate Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus, not Christ or Christus. Um, so this proves that he's not getting his information from uh, Christians, um, if anything. Um, but yeah, in, in point of fact, all it shows is, look, that, that's how he would have been known to the ancient pagans and the, the, who would have been his readers. And he wants to go with the name that's most familiar to that. Furthermore, think about it. Simply referring to Jesus wouldn't explain to his readers, you know, how it is that Jesus' followers were named Christians in the first place, which is what they were known by in, in Rome and during the fire, Neronian persecution. Um, Dr. Rob Van Burst, uh, he further makes the point that Tacitus is actually is issuing a subtle uh, corrective here in this passage. So the, the text of the oldest manuscript we have here, and most, like, most likely reading, spells Christians with an E, Christians, and that'll come into play when we talk about uh, Suetonius. But yeah, in, in naming Christ, Tacitus is actually correcting in a way typical of his, you know, his style of economy when he writes. The, the misunderstanding of uh, the crowd, Vulgus, by, by stating that the founder of this name is Christus, not the common name given by the crowd, Crestus, with an E. Um, so he calls attention uh, to this by his, his somewhat unusual phrase of, of the, the name, uh, you know, from the, the movement, Christians. Uh, and this allows him to link it directly and correctly to the name of Christ that we know today. And this is common practice, as we'll see in a later source, Pliny the Younger also calls him uh, Christus or Christ with an I. Um, so yeah, I think that covers, there is a third, there is a third objection here, a uh, miscellaneous objection that skeptics or mythicists will try to say, prove Tacitus or his sources were, you know, unreliable Christians or something like that. And it's Tacitus refers to a quote unquote, great multitude of Christians at Rome. And 
you know, there, this wouldn't have been the case. There wouldn't have been that many Christians in Rome at this early time in 64 AD, which is the time Tacitus refers to. Therefore, this reflects a Christian bias, the, the mythicists will say. You know, there, that proves he got his info from lay Christians of the second century, and he just blindly believed whatever they said. Um, but this is just an empty objection. It merely assumes, you know, it's begging the question on the part of mythicists. They just want to desperate not to believe no matter what. Um, and it's vague. What, what is a great multitude? What does that mean? Is that 50? Is it 100? 5,000? Um, you know, it's a relative term for um, to use to, to try and make this argument, and it just fails utterly. Yeah, uh, so it lacks specificity. This, this argument is just garbage. It doesn't prove anything. Okay, so, so great. So if it isn't, it's probably not lay Christians, or at the very least not just lay Christians, that Tacitus is getting his information from. It's probably not Pliny the Younger, or Pliny Secundus. Um, well, who is it? Okay, well then, who was it? Who were these other sources then, perhaps, be? Where does Tacitus get his, his information where he's being a critical historian about Jesus from? Uh, and the simple answer is, well, look, it, there is no way to really tell. He, ancient historians generally don't feel an obligation to reveal their sources. Um, Tacitian scholar Dr. Dr. Dudley uh, says this, quote unquote, an ancient historian was under no obligation to give his sources in detail, nor even to mention them at all. You know, systematic, careful references are a modern invention. Yeah, they're, they're in the first place, there is that. Um, however, it's we can make uh, arguments that about where Tacitus, pro Tacitus probably got his information from. And we know for a fact he probably got his information from the work of other historians whom he trusted and whose work is now lost to us. You know, in the book, in 15, book 1538, which is just right before 1544 where it talks about Jesus, Tacitus, for example, refers to, quote-unquote, multiple authors, meaning historians, who have given account. His information may have also come from common knowledge uh, on the... The street oral tradition by that period had spread far enough that he there was no countervailing evidence that there was no Jesus or there wasn't any Christians going around saying Jesus is a myth, Jesus is a myth, which we would expect. That's that's an argument. Another argument we'll get into that proves mythicism is totally false. Uh, we would have Jesus mythers going around, and Tacitus would have known about them and talked about them if that was the case. Some suggestions ha have also been made that Tacitus may have got his information from Josephus. But to be honest, this is just garbage. It, it's rejected by all Tacitian scholars. Um, Dr. Dr. Mendel that I mentioned before, for example, he, he'll say that Tacitus clearly knew nothing about Josephus based on what he's written. It's just totally opposite. And, and there's just so much evidence that proves he, he, he didn't know anything about Josephus. He didn't use Josephus as a source. So, okay, um, so common knowledge, other historians that are now lost to us. And what other Christian apologists like to argue for is, well, he, the imperial archives. This is the best source um, that proves it. And okay, maybe he used the imperial archives for some of this information. And I'm gonna argue that he probably did. Um, but there is an objection based on this, and, and they'll say he probably didn't use imperial archives. You know, we kind of covered that, you know, in terms of the procurator or um, using the name G uh, Christus instead of Jesus, the proper title versus the proper name. But yeah, the, the main objection, I would say, look, they'll say Tacitus would not have 
had permission to consult the Imperial Archives. And even if he did, it was not his regular practice to consult written documents. So this is the, what the Mithers try to say to try and prove he couldn't have gotten the information from Imperial Archive. Uh, even, even evangelical scholars like Murray Harris sort of support this, and they say, look, the, these Imperial records were quote-unquote secret so that even the Roman Senate needed special permission to consult them. Yeah, it's, it's not just like you can just walk in and, and get access to the imperial archives whenever you want. You need special permission from the emperor. Even Roman senators were not allowed uh, to just walk in and, and check out the records for their own purposes. So, yeah, what, does this eliminate the possibility that Tacitus used imperial archives? Not at all. This is This is just ridiculous because in the first place Tacitus was in such a position he was close with the emperors uh, Trajan and that sort of thing so he he would have had uh, permission as a scholar and historian to have access to the imperial archives it's more probable than not that he did as opposed to senators um, who were political rivals for the emperor and that sort of thing in, in a way so yes the imperial archives were indeed jealously guarded um, but Tacitus, for example, in histories, we know that the emperors did grant permission regularly to consult the imperial archives. And Tacitus himself was, in fact, given permission uh, for research um, in his histories, for example. Yeah, there, you know, there's nothing from Tacitus's own works that tell us about whether Tacitus himself needed special permission to consult the imperial archives. Um, or if, because he was so well known in the empire, the emperor, and if a favorite of the emperor, he was granted permission whenever he wanted um, as the official historian of the Roman Empire. Now, looking at Tacitus's background, this would suggest that basically if anyone were able to get special permission to consult the imperial archives, Tacitus is the guy. This is, this is the guy it would go to. He had singularly had the qualifications and preference from the empire, uh, and he was well-respected, uh, world-renowned to everyone in the empire. So, yeah, he, he was someone considered of high quality um, and had great fame as an orator. Um, but, yeah, be beyond that, uh, we can also report that there is actual evidence that Tacitus consulted original doc documents generally and governmental records specifically we actually have proof positive that he did access the imperial records, as I said. Um, so, for example, he consulted original documents of speeches of the emperor, which are discussed in his annals. Letters sent to Tiberius and others attacking Nero and Agrippina. He, he has the Acta Senatus, included letters from emperors, governors of provinces like Pilate. Um, Tacitus also probably made use of Rome's public libraries. He also consulted the Acta de Journa, which is basically like the daily public gazette, the newspaper. Um, he, he consulted private journals and memoirs, which uh, preserved in large numbers, especially the older aristocratic families. That Tacitus consulted the Senate archives is proved by the character of the material by its distribution. Relative to Book 4, Meller says that Tacitus used the records of the Senate for detailed accounts of speeches and debates. He included archival research, uh, which is especially notable in the early books of the Annals. Tacitus used the works of previous historians in private records, the Acta Senatus and Acta Dejourna. So yeah, I, I think it's m much more probable than not that Tacitus had 
access to the Imperial and Senate archives, which included the acts of Pontius Pilate and letters from the governors, which would have included his information of Jesus. So I think it's m much more probable than not that Tacitus had credible official records uh, for the death of Jesus by Pontius Pilate that he was basing his uh, assertion that this is historical fact on. Okay, so all in all, summarizing the evidence from Cornelius Tacitus, uh, I think this evidence is successful. On a balance of probabilities, it proves it's more probable than not that the minimal historical Jesus Christ, or Jesus, uh, did in fact exist, as per the evidence from Tacitus. So it's not a failure like Thallus and Flagan. And the way I arrived at this, so I assigned my own normative probabilities to each of the aspects with Tacitus. So in the first place, what's the probability that Tacitus as a whole is not a textual forgery by a Christian or a pagan or something like that? The whole work is just a forgery. As we saw, no one agrees with that. It's laughed at today. Tacitian scholars will laugh in your face if you even dare hint that such a thing is possible. Um, so I gave that, I think it's 95% to 9, it's proven beyond reasonable doubt, 95% to 99.99% proven that Tacitus's works as a whole were written by Cornelius Tacitus, the Roman historian. And I'll go with the worst case scenario for the benefit of you skeptics and mythicists, so let's say 95% proven. The second aspect, okay, well given that Tacitus did write the annals in general, did he write that particular passage talking about Jesus, 1544, in the Annals, uh, book 15, chapter 44, or is that a later Christian interpolation? And I think it's rather, once again, all the Tacitian scholars conclude with me, the, the evidence is too strong from the style and, and uh, the other evidence that this passage does in fact belong in the original and it was therefore written by Tacitus. So. Uh, I give the Christian interpolation of this specific passage within the text as a whole, again, 95 to 99.99% proven, and I'm a bit stronger, so I'm going to give it in the middle, 97.5% proven that this specific passage is not a Christian interpolation, but in fact was written uh, by Tacitus about Jesus. Then the third element about Cornelius Tacitus and his, okay, given that he wrote it, uh, is he reliable in general? Um, and, you know, would he have, uh, was he being reliable in this particular passage? And, you know, we got into the evidence about how he had motivation to actually look into it. He, he was in a position to be scrupulous, he, uh, especially in these later books uh, of the annals. He was trying to be much more meticulous. He always differentiated between rumor and, and hearsay and that sort of thing. And he states categorically this is historical fact. There's no mention or indication this is a a rumor, just hearsay of what Christians supposedly say about their leader and that sort of thing. So I'm 85% certain that given Tacitus wrote this passage, yeah, th this is, he is reporting historical facts as he knows it, as a generally reliable historian, and he was motivated to check out uh, sources to find out that this is true. Um, so he, he thought that this was this actually happened. Um, I'm 85% convinced of that. And then the final element, what about Tacitus's sources? Were they reliable? And I would say I'm 75% convinced that Tacitus used sources, not just lay Christians, not just Pliny the Younger and, and just blindly believed it, but he actually did critical analysis using other historians that are now lost to us 
that he trusted and also checked actual records and letters because we know for a fact he did. Uh, I, I mentioned the list there that the letters from the Senate to the governors, including Pilate, um, that we know for a fact he checked. Um, he would have probably had access to the imperial archives as well, not just the Senate's archives. We know that he checked out letters and memoirs and this sort of thing. And given his motivation to care about Jesus and the origin of Christianity because of the imperial family converting to Christianity with the Flavian, the Domitian of the Flavian dynasty, um, and his, his caring about pretenders who pretend to raise from the dead specifically, uh, yeah, I would say I'm 75% convinced that Tacitus's sources were credible official records, or at least included them uh, as confirmation of the core facts that Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. Um, so, so yeah, multiply those four elements, 95% times 97.5% times 85% times 75%, and we come out to 59.05% proven that the Tacitus quote proves a minimal historical Jesus existed uh, and was put to death under Pontius Pilate's orders in the reign of Tiberius. Uh, and he was known as the Christus, the Messiah, the founder of the Christian movement from which they get their name. Uh, the superstition, as he calls it, was abated for a bit and then broke out all over the world, just like what Acts tells us, including in the imperial city of Rome by 64 AD uh, up until Tacitus's time in 115-117 AD. Um, so yeah, 59.05%, close to 60% overall that this this quote proves it. It's, it's successful. It's more probable than not, given this evidence in isolation, that a minimal historical Jesus did in fact exist. Great, uh, our first success. Um, okay, so, so that's it for Tacitus. Let's move on to our next uh, ancient Roman historian. Uh, and this is going to be talking about Suetonius. So who was Suetonius? So as I said, he was an ancient Roman historian. His full name was Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus, um, otherwise known as Suetonius for short. Um, and yeah, he was an ancient Roman historian. To be honest, relatively little is known about him, um, but we do know that he was a patron for the young lawyer Pliny Secundus, Pliny the Younger, who we heard about with Tacitus. Uh, he was the chief secretary for the ancient Roman Emperor Hadrian, and yeah, he, he we know for a fact he had access to the imperial archives and records in creating his, his uh, historical or really Greco-Roman biographies of the first 12 Caesars, starting with Julius Caesar up until Domitian, again, who died in 96 AD. Um, so he wrote what was called the Lives of the Caesars, covering these 12 Caesars uh, up, up until the end of the first century. And he wrote this book around the same time as Tacitus uh, writing his annals. So he wrote the book, scholars say, somewhere between 117 to 122 AD. So, okay, what did he say then? What, what did he say about Jesus that Christian apologists like to use that proves a minimal historical Jesus? Um, so there's two quotes here. So in the first place, he, he wrote concerning the Emperor Claudius. Uh, Claudius ruled the empire from about 41 to 54 AD. And he says this, quote unquote, because the Jews were making constant disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, he expelled them from Rome. 
So, ah, oh, Crestus, that's Jesus. It's talking about the Christ that Christians believe in. That's what these disturbances were all about. And he, the emperor got sick of the Jews and said, get the heck out of here. We don't want you anymore because of these disturbances, fights between Jews and Christians, which at that time was viewed, you know, Christians were viewed as sort of like an internal sect within Judaism. You know, stop being fighting, get out of here. Um, now, Christian apologists say, well, perfect, this Acts chapter 18, verse 2, confirmed. Uh, this uh, confirms that Pris Aquila and his wife Priscilla, they were expelled from Rome and they met the Apostle Paul after the expulsion. So, bada bing, bada boom. We, we, got, we got him. We got the mythicists here, right? Um, now, there's also, a, before I get into assessing it, there's also a second reference by Suetonius about Christians in general. And this is backing up our quote with Tacitus about, uh, you know, Nero's persecution of Christians after the great fire uh, of Rome in 64 AD. And he says this, quote-unquote, After the great fire at Rome, punishments were also inflicted on the Christians, a sect professing a new and mischievous religious uh, belief. Um, so this is uh, quite interesting because he's, he's talking about the Christians confirming what Tacitus tells us. Also, he calls the sect, the Christian sect, a new religious belief. So that's that's interesting on the time frame for the mythicist debate because some mythicists crazily try to argue that uh, there was no there were Christians before the first century, going dating back to 100 BC. There were people that believed in Jesus Messiah figures, and uh, we'll we'll get into this when we get to the negative evidences. But Richard Carrier, for example, and Bob Price try to make these um, arguments that we'll see are very convoluted. Um, and ridiculous and bordering on lies, uh, quite frankly. But yeah, we'll, we'll get to that in a, in a future podcast. Um, but this quote alone puts a limit on that. Actually, it couldn't be in 100 BC. No, that it had to start before then, at the very least, being as charitable as I can to the mythicists, um, a new religion. So for the ancient Romans, they respected established ancient religions, like Judaism, that was tolerated and and uh, a respected or allowed uh, religion to, you know, you, you're long before us, that before we came along, we respect your beliefs and we'll tolerate you. New religions, no, those were superstitions and there was a, a big discrepancy or difference between the two and they, they would persecute them. So Christians were seen as a new sect. They weren't ancient, they weren't an established religion. Um, and this puts a, a limit on it. It would have to be uh, 63 BC is when Pompey Magnus or Pompey the Great conquered the Judean province or, or conquered Judea for the first time. So while there's some kind of relativity to what well, what does new mean for Suetonius, we we don't have is that a couple decades? Is it two years? Is it 50 years? 100 years? Um, but I think that we can be pretty comfortable and confident in saying well it would be at at least 63 BC when Pompey conquered and went into the temple and discovered the Jewish God. There was no pagan idols in the, in the temple and, and that sort of thing and where he just desecrated the temple or, or uh, later than that. So yeah, claiming that Christians date back to 100 BC is just falsified by, by Suetonius here. Now, in terms of content, uh, what's the main skeptical or mythicist uh, objection to using Suetonius as proof positive a minimal historical Jesus did in fact exist. Well, number one, it doesn't actually mention Jesus. Again, who cares? Doesn't matter. We 
we can overcome that objection. But it does come back down to the name. It doesn't say Christus like Tacitus does. It says Crestus. And mythicists will try to say, well, Crestus was a common name. It was a common name among slaves. So it was probably some kind of Jewish agitator and has nothing to do with Jesus Christ and Christians, but it has to do with some sect in Rome in 50 AD. Uh, Richard Carey, I'll, I'll provide sources getting into detailed arguments about this. Um, and, you know, Carrier will say, oh, it was an interpolation where it changed. In, in, sorry, in, um, I mentioned that Richard Carrier, and, and I still believe this is true. I, I don't think Richard Carrier believes there is an interp interpolation. I could be wrong in my assessment. He does provide arguments for that, and I'll provide a source where he argues that it was originally in Tacitus. It didn't say Christus. It said Crestus, just like Suetonius said, and then later on it became a an interpolation changing it to Christus to refer to Christians and that sort of thing. That's totally debunked um, by Tacitine scholars and, and everyone else who studies this, but I'll provide sources for that. The point is with here in Suetonius, it's not correct. It's Crestus, not Christus. Um, so this is really the main skeptical objection. It's, it's not even talking about Jesus, buddy. It, it's talking about some random guy who did a Jewish zealot or semi-zealot who started up a uh, um, a riot in Rome and that sort of thing. So that's what he's taught. That's the, the skeptical comeback. So is it talking about Jesus? Then? Is it talking about a, a Christus, not a Crestus, but a Christus? And various people have argued in the first place, Crestus would not have been a name, a proper name at that time. Um, there, there was something along those lines, but it wouldn't have been Crestus, especially not for a Jew. That name was just non-existent among Jews in the first century AD or, or otherwise, as far as I know. Uh, but definitely in the first first century, um, this, this was not a name that Suetonius would have been mentioning in regards to some kind of Jewish agitator, which is what uh, mythicists like to try and argue for here. You know, we have the way people interpret it. Mason, Dr. Mason, for example, a, a scholar here in Suetonius and Josephus, he believes that the reference is to Jesus, um, but Suetonius altered his name to be heard to be that of a common slave name. Uh, we also found out with Tacitus that pagans got the name wrong among the, the Vulgus, the, the, the mob or the, uh, you know, the plebeians would falsely call Jesus Crestus and that sort of thing. So maybe he's doing what Tacitus might have done and instead of where Tacitus is correcting it, um, Suetonius just goes with the flow and says, okay, I, that's what you call him, I'm going to go along with that. Dr. Van Verst, Robert Van Verst, he, he also adds the peculiarity of a gravestone that actually offers both spellings at once. So it could be that both are correct, actually. Um, and it, it's not an issue. It's still referring to Jesus. And in terms of the actual uh, context, it just makes more, much more sense that it is referring to Jesus Christ of the Christians rather than some random Crestus that no one's ever heard of before because he would have been the, the biggest thing going around in Rome at this time. This is why Nero targets Christians in order to persecute them as a sect. So the it just seems more plausible and seems to fit the evidence better that this Crestus is in fact Jesus Christ. Uh, I think it's more probable than not that, yeah, this is talking about Jesus Christ of the Christians or Christ of Christus of the Christians and it's just 
they had a different way of saying it, Crestus, and Suetonius adopted that for whatever reason. So yeah, that that's sort of my take there, and I'm, I'm not gonna. I'm, I'm going to provide links and sources on that, so if you're really interested in this, you can look at the arguments for and against. I've got a, an argument from Richard Carrier saying it's talking about this. and um, However, I'm, I'm going to skip over that for time's sake because we're already over two hours, but it doesn't matter. Let, let's pretend it is referring to Jesus, Christus of the Christians. Okay, well, what can we assess about this source? So in the first place, I'm going to skip over textual issues. Let's pretend Suetonius, it's proven Suetonius did actually write this. Um, not a problem. We'll, we'll just go with that. Most scholars believe that anyways. Um, but including mythicists, by the way. Um, however, here here's the main Achilles heel of this. And this is why I think using Suetonius in isolation is a failure. It, it's unsuccessful at proving a minimal historical Jesus on balance of probabilities. And it, it does seem to me that in terms of Suetonius himself, his reliability, uh, let alone for, forget about his sources and where he's getting his information from. Like I said, we could try and make an argument. He had access to the Imperial archives and he could have checked it out um, and try to argue that maybe he wouldn't have just heard from Christians or hearsay and that sort of thing. But here, here's the Achilles heel. Here's why he's different than Tacitus. Unlike Tacitus, Suetonius's reliability is a lot more controversial for him as a, a person or a historian. Um, so, you know, you'll you'll get sort of a mixed reaction on on scholars who specialize in Suetonius and and who ancient Roman historians who read his works. Um, so, you know, on the on the one hand, here's one uh, scholar saying that. To, that uh, Suetonius is great. So we're going to look at both uh, Dr. Banco and Dr. Van Verst, and they come to opposite conclusions about Tacitus here. One source would say, look, if this is indeed a reference to Jesus, then it is a good one, nearly as good as Tacitus. Suetonius was known as a quote-unquote painstaking researcher interested in minute details. So this is what Bank Dr. Banco says. And then he goes on. He was as well. He was a prolific writer in matters of history and antiquities, including biographies of Julius Caesar and several Roman emperors. This was a man in a position to know. Um, so, you know, Dr. Banco and, and uh, Harris, they, they would uh, agree and say, yeah, Suetonius is like Tacitus. He, he's, he's good. You can trust it. He would have been critical of his sources and, and checked out this stuff. On the other hand, uh, Dr. Robert Van Verst tells us of Suetonius, quote-unquote, he repeats uh, a mistake in his sources, and this is characteristic of Suetonius. He often treats his sources uncritically and uses them carelessly. So, yeah, you know, Banco and Van Verst, they're both modern, equally qualified scholars, uh, but they come to totally opposite conclusions, and this is indicative of what historians think of Suetonius in general. There's this mixture, whereas Tacitus, it's, it's no, this is the guy. He's great, grand, and groovy. Uh, um, yeah, but the, the point is there's this, there's this muddying of the waters or this mixture of controversy among the scholars as to Suetonius himself and as an, a reliable evaluator and, and critical thinker about the sources that he's using. So here, I think the mythicist can say, oh, no, it, it is equally possible. Suetonius wasn't using imperial archives or official records. 
he was just getting his information secondhand uh, or thirdhand from Christians on the street or pagans, uh, you know, telling what they heard Christians saying and that sort of thing. And there's really no way for for me to, as the claimant here to prove positively on a balance of probabilities that no Suetonius was probably exercising uh, critical evaluation of of his sources when he's reporting these facts and and or was getting them from reliable sources, uh, would have done the due diligence to ensure that. Um, I don't think we can do that for Suetonius in the same way that we can make that argument for Tacitus. So, yeah, that, right there, that that sort of defeats. I, I think Suetonius is a failure in isolation. However, I, I do think it is speaking about, probably speaking about Jesus and he was an ancient Roman historian writing at the same time as Tacitus and mentions the same events, uh, such as Nero's fire and links that to Christian. So I, I think that we can use Suetonius as supplemental or supportive evidence for backing up the Tacitus quote, perhaps. And so it, it could be valuable in that regards. But in, in terms of directly proving a minimal historical Jesus when in its own right, uh, yeah, I think the mythicists are, are correct to be a bit skeptical of, of using this, and Christians should be cautious. It, it's possible that this is a good source, uh, so you know it, it's not proven fake or something like that, but it's it's problematic. So yeah, that's that's my take on Suetonius. So yeah, next up we'll move straight into evaluating our last ancient historian, and this is the Jewish historian and the provably earliest of them all, and that is of course the famous and or infamous, depending on your perspective, Flavius Josephus. Uh, what does he say about Jesus? Okay, so in the first place, uh, who was Flavius Josephus? Who is Josephus? So basically, Flavius Josephus, he was a Jewish uh, person. He was uh, born in about 37 AD to a priestly family. He, he was born uh, Joseph Ben Matthias, so the son of Matthias. And Matthias was you know, in the priestly class, he was the the upper echelon in Jerusalem, and he dies, and he died around ninety seven A.D. to one hundred A.D., so somewhere around that time frame. Um, he was around during the. He's really our main and only source, an eyewitness source of the Jewish war that took place from sixty six to seventy A.D., uh, and then. Uh, going to Masada with the, the zealots and that sort of thing um, up to 73 AD. So he gives us a history of the Jewish war around that time, the destruction of the Second Temple and everything. Yeah, he, he wrote several histories, uh, you know, the Jewish wars, um, and as well the, the most famous, the work that we're going to be interested in here, The Antiquities of the Jews. And this is the the only book that talks about Jesus, and this, so it's going to be the one that we're interested in. So... Uh, the Antiquities of the Jews, this was written in about 93 AD, most people put it at, 93, 94. Um, I've seen some as late as 96 AD, but most scholars scholars place it 93 AD. That's, that's the date of when this was written. So this is obviously over two decades earlier from Tacitus and Suetonius. So this is great. This is our our earliest provable non-Christian secular source that talks about Jesus. Now, okay, uh, so what, what did he say? What did Christian apologists use Josephus for? And there's actually three passages that are relevant for Christians. The, the first is about John the Baptist. And 
we're actually, that's irrelevant. That's outside of the scope of our uh, talk here. So that's in Antiquities, Book 18, uh, Chapter 5, Paragraph 2. And he, yeah, he confirms some details about John the Baptist being arrested by and killed by King Herod uh, Antipas, uh, just like the Gospels say, confirmed. But there are actually differences in the account uh, compared to early Christian ch uh, church tradition and, and compared to the Gospels themselves and what they record about the death of John the Baptist. So, yeah, in that way, it's an independent. This passage is uncontroversial. Nobody, pretty much nobody disputes it. Although, in my research, I did come across a couple of radical skeptics who just don't really know the history of what they're talking about and what scholars actually say about it. But, yeah, as I said, the John the Baptist passage, totally irrelevant. Uh, let's, let's get rid of that. That said, for our purposes, improving a minimal historical Jesus, there are two passages in the Antiquities of the Jews that are relevant. Um, so the first one is also in Book 18 of Antiquities, Chapter 3, uh, Paragraph 3. And this is the, the famous Testimonium Flavianum. This is where Jesus, Josephus tells us directly a lot of details about this minimal historical Jesus. Uh, confirming exactly what the Gospels say about him. So, so here's the the quote that the full quote that uh, Christian apologists will will like to give. Quote unquote. About this time, there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man. Hint: He's God. Gospels confirmed. Um, quote, and then continue on. For he was one who performed surprising deeds, meaning miracles and was a teacher of such people as accept the truth gladly. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks also. He was the Christ, a.k.a. the Messiah. And when, upon the accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate had him condemned to a cross, those who had first come to love him did not cease. He appeared to them spending a third day restored to life so he rose on the third day other translations put it um for the prophets of god had foretold these things and a thousand other marvels about him and the tribe of the christians so called after him has still to this day not dis disappeared wow this is incredible i mean geez a, a jewish historian telling us that uh jesus uh teaching us jesus was a real guy he did miracles um, he was put to death by the evil principal Jewish men, um, the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees on the Sanhedrin, uh, and Pilate, uh, he was crucified. But the Christian, he was in charge of the tribe of the Christians, and they didn't go away because he rose from the dead on the third day, just as the prophets in the Old Testament foretold he would. And Josephus even hints Jesus was God in the flesh, my friends, because it's not right to call him a man. So yeah, that that's we get a lot from that. You, you get a you get the entire gospel message in that little quote right there. So yeah, I think I think this uh, this is why Christian apologists are very pleased with this. But there's also a lesser talked about quote uh, where Josephus talks about James, the brother of Jesus Christ, and this is in it. In Antiquities, but Book 20, so it comes later after the Testimonium, um, Chapter 9, Paragraph 1. And basically it says this, uh, so the relevant portion, Festus uh, was now dead, and Albinus 
uh, was but upon the road to come to Jerusalem to be in charge as the new governor. Uh, so he assembled the Sanhedrin. So it's it's talking about there's a one one guy named Ananus, um, and he's the high priest. So he so Ananus assembled the Sanhedrin of judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ. The man before him, his name was James, and some others. And when he had formed an accusation against them as breakers of the law. He delivered them to be stoned. But as for those who seemed the most equitable of the citizens, and such as were the most uneasy at the breach of the laws, they disliked what was done. Um, so yeah, that, that's the relevant part of the quote um, that talks, that proves, look, a minimal historical Jesus existed. He had a biological brother named James, just like the New Testament says, just like Christian tradition says. So yeah, that's uh, what, what Josephus gives us and that Christian apologists uh, like to use and says, well, this obviously proves there was a minimal historical Jesus uh, and a whole bunch of other stuff that uh, make, makes Christians smile uh, and puts mythicists to, you know, to shame, really, that they don't know what they're talking about. Um, but is this true? Is this too good to be true or not? Uh, let's, let's do an assessment of these quotes. Okay, so the first issue to take into effect is um, Josephus's reliability and the reliability of his sources. And this can be quickly dismantled. Uh, I, I'm going to say I'm 99% proven that this is not an issue. Everyone, even mythicists, agree. Look, in terms of Josephus's reliability, he's, he's not as good as Tacitus, but he's pretty good. And, and we all, all historians rely on him for accurate information about first century AD Palestine or you know the Roman province of Judea and that sort of thing so he's pretty good but the best thing here is look he was an eyewitness not of Jesus obviously he was born in 37 AD so that was after Jesus death but he was an eyewitness to the early church and he was in a position to know and have eyewitness testimony as you know a, the higher up member of the priest priestly class uh, he would priests were and converting to Christianity so he would have had eyewitness testimony as to what their early claims were in the you know 40s and 50s AD, um, very very early, and heard from people that were actually living at the time Jesus died and that sort of thing. So, yeah, if Josephus said these quotes, then I I would say I'm not. It's 99% proven that this represents reliable information, eyewitness testimony. Um, and it's true, a, a minimal historical Jesus died and all of the things attributed to him actually happened. Okay, so, so let's look at the text then. That's really where a controversial controversy is going to come up. Um, so in the first place, Josephus as a whole, was the textual integrity, did Josephus write Antiquities of the Jews, the entire book? And again, it's you will be laughed at. It's ridiculous. No one with a functioning brain or a PhD not even mythicists, Richard Carrier, Bob Price, no one makes the ridiculous claim that Josephus didn't write the antiquities of the Jews as a whole. Um, so again, as with Tacitus, and, and there aren't even any radical lay skeptics that question this uh, in the same way that there was with Tacitus, you know, centuries ago, but going back to, I said 1920, it was actually, 1923 was actually the last person who was crazy enough to, to make that 
foolish claim. Uh, but nobody claims that about Josephus. The manuscript evidence is solid. We have early church tradition quoting from Josephus going as far back as the 220s with Origen, um, you know, Eusebius, Jerome. Yeah, it, it's, I'm going to do the same as I did with Tacitus, 95% proven, and it's beyond reasonable doubt that Josephus wrote the Antiquities of the Jews. So really where the bulk of our conversation is going to come into play, where, where skeptics and mythicists try to, you know, do away with this awesome evidence that proves Jesus did in fact exist is the typical interpolation claim. No, okay, well the passage, the two passages referring to Jesus that we're looking at, those are interpolations. Uh, Josephus didn't write those specifically. And in the first place, I think I just have to state up front that mythicists are not crazy here. There is good, there are good arguments and evidence and actual proof, I would say, in, in one case, that there are at least partial interpolations. So this, this, in getting into this, the majority, so there are three positions one can take. Number one, the entire passage is authentic, as I just read it to you. Pretty much no one, not even Christian scholars, agree with that with regard to the testimonium, the the long quote about Jesus being a miracle worker and he was the Messiah. So in the first place, we have to reject it's not entirely authentic. The testimonium, there are Christian interpolations. You know, Origen tells us that Josephus's quote was negative against Jesus, and he wasn't a Christian, and he cuts him up for this. So would a Jewish historian really say Jesus was the Messiah and, and hint that he was God in the flesh? And no, I, I just, that's virtually, that's proven beyond reasonable doubt that it, that Josephus wouldn't have said those things. So there are at least some interpolation, Christian interpolations in that text. And that's uncontroversial. All Christians, except even Christian scholars like Michael Kona, Gary Habermas, and Josephus scholars all accept this. So that has to be admitted up front. The second position is that the entire thing is an interpolation. Um, both passages Sorry, the, the entire testimonium is an interpolation. And the mythicists aren't uh, as ridiculous in regards to the James passage to say that's the entire thing there is an interpolation. They go for a partial interpolation for that. So that's the third option, is that these passages contain partial interpolations and are partially accurate. And that's, so with regard to the testimonium, that's the position I take. Um, and I also take that with the James passage, that's entirely accurate. That was Josephus in its entirety. So those are the positions that I've come to, but let's let's get into it. Now, the other thing that I should mention here, so I've done a lot of research with Josephus. I, I looked at like dozens, literally dozens and dozens of sources. And I'm going to do my best to provide the best of those sources. You know, I've, I've looked, I've read books. I've looked at both sides, skeptics and and mythicists and non-mythicists, secular, Christian sources, Christian apologists, and there does seem to have been a shift. So if you're looking at, and I think that Christians need to be aware of this, aware of this if you're using Josephus, that there, there has been a, a radical update or revolution in the field since 2008. Um, between 2008 and 2014, there were significant updates in scholarship that if you're reading like a Christian apologist, so one of the books that I read from a Christian apologist, Josh McDowell, and I'll provide a source 
Uh, it's a skeptical source against him by on infidels.org, but you can pick up the arguments that Josh McDowell uses as well as get a skeptical counter by providing that source. Uh, but yeah, jo Josh McDowell, for example, his book, He Walked Among Us, uh, is a great book, but it, it predates some of the updates. So you'll see some outdated arguments or arguments that have now become a little bit more controversial and that sort of thing. Um, so just be aware there is that divide and, and be wary of, be aware of the dates of, you know, the arguments when you're looking for evidence on the, the testimonium of Josephus or something like that, uh, be mindful of, okay, well, when is this author writing? Um, but yeah, it, it's, I'm not saying anything written before 2008 is useless. It's not, uh, that many of the arguments I'm still going to be using because I think they're good. Um, and that sort of thing. But there, there have been important updates that I think you should be aware of if you're going to make a decision on the evidence from Josephus. You, you have to be up to date in the, in the scholarship. And I'll, I'll be linking to a skeptical article by Richard Carrier who, who makes this argument. And I, th I think that he, he is right, um, that Christians should try to grapple with this these new updates in the field. That doesn't mean I agree with all of the conclusions Carrier gives about these new updates. He's totally out to lunch in some areas, I think. Um, but it's important for you to be aware of it. So, yeah, those that's enough for the preliminaries. Um, let, let's get into actually assessing. Are, are these an interpolation? Is it an entire interpolation, as mythicists like to say? Or is it a partial interpolation? And we're going to first look at the Testimonium Flavianus, Antiquities 1833. So that's the longer passage. So it's important to note that the majority, the vast majority of scholarships on the Christian side here, they, they'll they take the position that, no, that Josephus definitely talks about Jesus, um, even though a lot of some stuff, it's partially authentic and partially interpolation. So Dr. Louis Feldman, he's recognized, he's a secular world's expert on Josephus. Both mythicists and Christian apologists recognize his authority and quote from him. You'll see that Carrier, in many of the articles I quote to, Carrier uses Louis Feldman for his evidence, as do Christian apologists. And overall, Louis Feldman's on the Christian side. Mythicists are out to lunch, according to Feldman. Um, so this is what he said when he was asked, so. First of all, Feldman gives lists of about at least 87 scholarly treatments on the testimonium. In personal email correspondences with Dr. Michael Kona, Feldman uh, admits that he doesn't have an accurate percentage of Josephus scholars, and is though he actually went out and surveyed every single Josephus scholar. But just from his detailed knowledge of the field, uh, this is what he, he made a rough guess or estimate. And he says this, quote unquote, my guess is that the ratio of those who in some manner accept the testimonium would be at least three to one. And personally, I would not be surprised if it were as much as five to one. Um, Jewish scholar, non-Christian Dr. Vermes also agrees, quote unquote, declaring the whole notice a forgery would amount to throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Indeed, in recent years, most of the experts, including myself, have adopted a middle course, accepting that part of the account is authentic, uh, while some parts are not. So yeah, these are non-Christian scholars and world's experts in Josephus. Louis Feldman is a noted expert that both sides rely on, and he backs me up. So 
that's just, uh, you know, keeping it real as to where scholarship actually is. And I think that that's, we need to keep that in mind. Um, but ultimately, appealing to authority is not going to decide the matter. Um, and there are arguments uh, for and against the passage that we need to look at. We need to look at the evidence. And uh, as I said, there, there are literally dozens and dozens of articles. I looked at a heck of a lot of stuff for Josephus, and I'm not going to be able to include them all. But I'm trying, I, I wanted to include some of the main ones and that sort of thing. So with regard to the testimony, the, the first major pro argument is based on the manuscripts. Every single manuscript on the planet has the quote exactly as Christian apologists like to say. Uh, these are both Greek and earlier Latin ones, uh, as well as a, uh, an Arabian uh, manuscript that we'll talk about later, um, because that that's... That's a major evidence. There is an Arabic uh, text by was a scholar named Shlomo uh, Pine wrote about this, and this is considered proof that the Christians are correct, and it's a partial interpolation, but it's partially authentic. Um, but there are issues with that Arabic manuscript. Uh, we'll get to that later. So that's one of the new updates uh, post-2008 uh, that's come about, but we'll get to that later. Um, but basically, every everyone has a mention, a minimal mention of Jesus, where part part of that quote that I gave of the testimonium is correct and affirms that a minimal historical Jesus did in fact exist. We have multiple early church fathers, Eusebius, going back to Origen, Jerome, all talking about and quoting from uh, this text in Josephus and that sort of thing. Now, one thing that mythicists are correct to point out is. Well, look, re remember, though, even with all of this, all the surviving manuscripts of the antiquities could derive from a corrupted manuscript that took place, that was interpolated in ancient times. And, you know, people like Carrier will say, well, let's say it was corrupted before 220 AD at some point, and all subsequent manuscripts are all based on this one interpolation or, or corruption or something like that. Okay, uh... Yeah, I, I don't think that we can conclude con conclusively that just because it's in every single manuscript that we have today, that proves it is, in fact, authentic. However, the manuscript test is a major test that scholars and historians look to to prove if something is, in fact, an interpolation, because you would expect variant traditions. Uh, certainly, we have that with the Bible and, and other historical documents. So... The fact that it there isn't a, a variant tradition uh, that it that just has no mention of this or at all mention of Jesus or anything like that or the testimonium it does say something it passes a falsification test at the very minimum. Okay, so this the second major argument now this there's just so much here and I, I read over everything I I could again I'm I'm gonna provide sources for and against on this but basically relates to the style, the language and the style. And there are a whole host of arguments in this category of evidence, both for and against. Christian apologists will, and you know, I'll give you a tectonics thing, uh, thing where there's a video. In the second video especially, he goes over a lot of Josephus style um, words and phrases and that sort of thing and says, see, this proves Josephus didn't did indeed write this, you know. So, for example, calling Jesus a wise man—that's not typically a Christian way of referring to someone, but that is some 
Josephus calls people wise men. He calls Solomon. He calls Daniel wise men. So this is a Josephus phraseology or language that proves Josephus wrote this. Um, calling Jesus' miracles, quote-unquote, astonishing deeds. You know, in the, in the Greek, paradoxa erga. This is a Josephus expression. And, you know, he, Josephus uses this for the miracles of Elisha. And, but the reverse is also true. There, there have been many uh, scholars who, including Josephus scholars, I think uh, Louis Feldman himself, makes mention of the fact that, well, there's also words that are markedly Eusebian, going back to the early church father Eusebius, uh, Justin Martyr. Um, there are commonalities with the Gospels in Luke, or Luke-Acts. So, yeah, my honest assessment, after looking at all of the... And I, I this is just the tip of the iceberg. Like that, There's no way I'm going to be able to summarize everything. And to be honest, I'm going to spare you the time of doing that. But Although I am going to provide sources, and please do check check some of this out. But yeah, my personal thing is arguing based on the language, style, or grammar gets you nowhere. It doesn't prove whether it's fake or whether it's authentic. We just, you can't make a conclusion based on it. So yeah, that's that's my take on the, the language or use of style or grammar to try and prove whether it's authentic or not. You know, obviously being a non-scholar, I'm not an expert like the, the sources I'm looking at, but doing my best as a layman and, and looking at seriously and what both sides and the arguments that both sides make um you know some interesting points it just seems like it's a wash to me i couldn't i couldn't figure out whether it was authentic or not based on this type of argument um so yeah let, let's move on to the next uh category of evidence okay so this is a mythos myth a mythicist category of evidence again there are multiple arguments so i won't be able to cover them all but uh some of the main ones so Earl mythicist Earl Doherty, uh, who was the inspiration for Richard Carrier, for example, will say, look, Josephus himself doesn't talk about Jesus except in the antiquities of the Jews. Why doesn't he talk about, you know, uh, talk about Jesus in the section on Pilate in the earlier Jewish war? And, you know, that's just not appropriate. The answer to that is, look, th this type of argument is suggestive, but it's inconclusive. You're reading in motivations for Josephus and, and, He's provably not what moderns would expect, as are all ancient historians. They don't report details uh, that we expect to. And uh, again, this is the Jewish war. It's not. A, it's 66 to 70 AD. It's not focused on the 30s AD when Jesus lived. Um, sure, there's a little section on Pilate, but that's not the major focus. Like the antiquities of the Jews is going up from Adam and Eve all the way up to the present day. That's an entire history. So of course we would expect him to talk about Jesus in that thing, whereas we wouldn't in the book entitled Jewish War, about the Jewish war. And Dr. Robert Grant, he really notes that, look, quote unquote, none of them, John the Baptist, which mythicists say, yep, that one's good. Uh, James, Jesus, the, the death of Herod, um, isn't mentioned in the Jewish war and stuff. Does that mean that didn't happen or those are interpolations? Of course not. And mythicists know that this is ridiculous. This is just them reading in uh, their own ideas of modern expectations onto the text. And it's proven time and time and again that their expectations are false. Ancients don't operate according to their assumptions as to what they would expect. And um, historically proven fact, 100%, not a single doubt in my mind, skeptics are wrong. Whenever they say we would expect this to be mentioned, they're always wrong.
um, or at the very least, it's it's inconclusive. You have to have very very strong reasons, and this this doesn't cut it. Another version of a, an absence of mention of Jesus is well, looking to the Christ, early Christian church fathers, and they'll and they'll say skeptics or mythicists will say. Why don't any of the early Christian church fathers, Irenaeus, uh, Polycarp, uh, Papias, Ignatius, none of these guys, uh, Tertullian, none of these guys quote this text, and they should, right? Um, it's it's not mentioned until Eusebius. That's it's a valid question. Why don't the early Christian church fathers quote this passage? And typically, the answers are in the first place, we we don't have all of their writings, so maybe they did. But in the real early period, there is no need for them to do this. I mean, the, especially like the James passage that we'll be talking about, uh, the testimonium. If, if it is a partial interpolation, all it is really doing is just attesting to the truth of Jesus' crucifixion and, and the Christian movement. That I, Irenaeus wouldn't need to quote that, um, really. It, it wouldn't have been relevant because no skeptic in the history of mankind until modern times doubted that Jesus actually existed historically and that's what quoting these passages are relevant for it, it wouldn't help uh, origin in his arguments against um, the heretics or the pagans for example and yeah again you can't prove that we would have an expectation that the early church fathers in the early second century would quote from Josephus's writings also it's it sometimes pointed out that the um, Josephon as it's called um, which is a medieval Hebrew version of Josephus, uh, lacks this particular passage in question. So remember I said all extant manuscripts have this passage intact in one form or another, mentioning Jesus and that sort of thing without exception. Um, so some lay mythicists who don't know what they're talking about will point to a, a thing called Josephine, double P. Uh, and this is some a, a medieval Hebrew version of Josephus, and they'll say, see, it's not in there. However, actually, jo Josephine is dependent on the text of the Antiquities preserved by Christians, and this is historically known. And trust me, that the text of the Christians had it in there. So it's cl really clear that the author of Josephine, uh, he does not represent an independent manuscript tradition. Um, he just purposely omits the passage uh, for his own purposes. So. You know, this claim of the skeptics totally fails as well. This is an, another one of those garbage ones. Now, in terms of this, um, you know, this claim about the early patristic fathers, you know, Justin Martyr, Theophilus, Melito, why, why, uh, why aren't they mentioning Josephus? Fellow skeptic, one of the authors of, and founders of infidels.org, a famous skeptics, atheist website on, online, Jeffrey J. Lauder writes this, look, quote unquote, assuming that contemporary reconstructions of the passage are accurate, it is difficult to imagine why the early church fathers would have cited such a passage. The original text probably did nothing more than establish the historical Jesus. Since we have no evidence that the historicity of Jesus was questioned in the first centuries, we should not be surprised that the passage was never quoted until the fourth century. Um, and then Christian scholar John Meyer, he, he provides this. He says, quote unquote, one possible explanation of this silence would actually jibe well with my with his reconstruction of the testimonium and his isolation of the Christian interpolations that he provides. So uh, if until shortly before the time of Eusebius, the testimonium lacked the three Christian interpolations that are suspected to have been 
put into the testimonium, then of course the church fathers would not have been overly eager to cite it, for it hardly supports the mainline Christian belief in Jesus as the Son of God who rose from the dead. This would explain why Origen in the 3rd century affirmed that Josephus did not believe Jesus to be the Messiah. Origen read the Josephus and quoted from it. So, so yeah, that's sort of that that's sort of the main argument. The lack of mention, again, to my mind, it doesn't prove that this passage is inauthentic in its entirety. Again, not even that isn't foolproof, but I'll, I'll give it to the skeptic. I'll, I'll give them 55% proven that uh, th this quote in its entirety is not true based on this, this lack of mention by the early church fathers during the first couple centuries. Uh, okay, uh, so an another category, main category of objection. So a myth, a myth is uh, Steve Mason. He says, look, quote unquote, the passage does not fit well within its context in antiquities. So they'll try to say the particular pa testimony and passage doesn't fit the surrounding text. It, it, it makes more sense if you take that out and then just read the narrative straight through. Or it doesn't make sense to Josephus and his concerns in general. Steve Mason says the, the passage does not fit well with its context in antiquities. Josephus is speaking of upheavals, but there is no upheaval here. He's, he's you know, pointing out the folly of Jewish rebels, governors, troublemakers. But this, this passage is completely supportive of both Jesus and his followers. So logically, that, that doesn't fit in the, the passage. That's sort of the, the main argument of the mythicist. But yeah, really, the, this doesn't work. So in the first place, Josephus is historically proven to be prone to digressions. Um, he'll, he'll digress the conversation off topic. Uh, or given aside and that sort of thing. So uh, this actually would be this wouldn't be a problem for Josephus. He does this type of thing all the time. If it was even if it is true, what the mythicists try to say and say that the eighteen three three is like an off-topic thing. However, uh, in point of fact, this isn't actually true about Josephus. So it, it's totally wrong. Um, scholars have, have dismissed this argument immediately because. Look, only two of the five surrounding paragraphs in Josephus's chapter, uh, which contain this testimonium, are actually about true calamities. The, the content of paragraphs of chapter three are as follows. Paragraph one speaks of a potential calamity which was overcome by the courage of the Jews as they protested against Pilate. Uh, paragraph two does speak of the calamity of the Jews where a great number of them were killed and others wounded. Paragraph 3 is our testimonium, which is not about a calamity. Paragraph 4 describes the account of the seduction of a virtuous woman in the Temple of Isis at Rome. It has absolutely nothing to do at all with the Jews or anything else in the chapter. It's a total digression. But yet, mythicists and skeptics have no problem taking paragraph 4 as authentic to Josephus. That's the interpolation, if anything. That should be thrown out under your logic. But, of course, you're not because you're just biased against Jesus. You don't want there to be proof for Jesus. Um, and then paragraph 5 is, again, about uh, the banishment of the Jews from Rome. So, saying that, look, the passage about Jesus isn't about a calamity, therefore it doesn't belong in the text. It's just a total nonsense and wrong. Actually, only two out of the five surrounding... Uh, paragraphs in that chapter are about calamities, um, and one of them isn't even about Jews at all. It's a total digression. 
Um, so yeah, th this argument is just total nonsense by the mythicists. Okay, um, and then the, sec the second part is, um, it it's unlikely, th this part is successful of the mythicists, you know, or it's saying Jesus was the Christ, is it, is he known to be a man and that sort of thing. Th these are the parts that actually are Christian interpolations and are not uh, consistent or harmonious with what we would expect Josephus as a non-Christian Jew to say. So yeah, there, there are those bits and pieces in there. But the passage as a whole, talking about Jesus, it fits into Je Josephus's place perfectly. It, it's not this out-of-touch digression or something like that. Now, one, one argument from this uh, that I think is powerful in, in terms of proving that the passage in one form or another, minimally talking about Jesus and his death, is probably true is the fact that, look, um, the passage is antithetical to later Christian thought in the second and third centuries. So it couldn't have been made by, a, or very probably was not made by a Christian interpolator. And that is the fact that they stress the blame is on Pilate. So if you remember, I, I made an emphasis, those evil Jews. Actually, he, Josephus doesn't say that in the quote. To say it that way, he, he doesn't lay the blame for Jesus' execution on the Jews, like the Christians did at that point. Um, you know, all on the Jews, bring the blame on the Jews. And in the second century, anti-Semitism was on the rise among the pagan, uh, increasingly Gentile Christian church because, you know, the Jews stood up to Rome and the pagans hated their guts after that. In the diaspora, they were looked down on and all of that, um, especially after the Bar Kokhba rebellion in 132, 135 AD. Um, life was just never the same for the Jews. So it... it it doesn't make sense that a second century or third century Christian interpolator would have put the blame and, and been angry against Pilate as opposed to the Jews. It would have been the reverse had a Christian done it. And I think that this is uh, really a powerful argument for the authenticist side, that the testimonium in, does contain at least an authentic substratum talking about Jesus and his death in relation to Pilate. And it's this criterion of dissimilarity. So I would give that about 65 to 70% proven it's authentic and minimally authentic. Uh, there's a partial authentic portion in that regards there. Um, so, uh, yeah. Okay, here, here's another category on the positive side. So, basically, some scholars have said, look, this, uh, such a fake is totally unprecedented. There, um, Steve Mason states, quote-unquote, to have created the testimonium out of whole cloth as an entire interpolation would be an act of unparalleled scribal audacity um so therefore it, it's this is ridiculous it's totally ad hoc on the part of mythicists um they're out to lunch and just making stuff up to avoid the evidence oh however there is there is a contradict there is a contradiction here mythicists do have a good at least at face value a good comeback and that is the fact that well actually no we have proof that christians did do this with josephus we have a slavonic or russian uh, text of Josephus where it is a long interpolate Christian interpolation uh, it's only found in the Slavonic or the old Russian version of the Jewish war and I'll, I'll provide this is a medieval manuscript so it has no bearing on ancient Christians doing interpolations of this kind um, I, I think that this argument is still there's something here it's suggestive but I, I'm uncomfortable assigning a it's more this prove the uniqueness of this proves it didn't happen or that sort of thing so i'm not going to assign 
that as a success as a positive evidence. But um, yeah, bear, bear in mind, with this one exception of this Slavonic or Russian manuscript, which is an example of such a scribal audacity, a wholesale interpolation created out of whole cloth, uh, apart from that, never happens. Completely unparalleled in the ancient world. Uh, this stuff, we just don't see this. Okay, so the next category the, the, uh, of evidence, the positive evidence, proving that the testimonium is actually authentic, at least partially authentic, in, in that it attests to a minimal historical Jesus, comes from uh, what was a, a discovery, Dr. Shlomo Pine, and I sort of hinted at this. There's an Assyrian or Arabic manuscript of Josephus and Christian apologists uh, such as Josh McDowell and, and Mike, Michael L., uh, Gary Habermas talks about this. Um, and they, they go on and talk about Dr. Shlomo Pine uh, proved that there is this manuscript that gives us an actual version that Christians like to say in terms of the partial version. It takes out the controversial Christian interpolations that are in the, the manuscripts, like he was the Christ and is it uh, fair to call him a man and all, all the con all the controversial bits are out of it. Um, and it, it seems much more like what scholars have been saying this whole time, proof positive. This is an independent tradition that goes back to Josephus and preserves probably what he actually said, just like all the Josephine scholars have been saying this whole time. So, um, yeah, you know, they'll, they'll cite this as bada boom, bada bing, you're destroyed skeptics, you're destroyed mythicists. Um, unfortunately, this ha this line of evidence is controversial. And you'll see Michael Michael uh, Brown, Michael Lacona, sorry, uh, back in 2010 in his book, uh, even he starts to admit he still thinks that this Arabic manuscript that it's potentially good evidence. But even he's starting to distance himself and say it's become controversial since 2008. So this there has been an update um, in the evidence from this. That makes it a little bit more controversial to, to use and since I'm not so I, I think we can't use it I don't feel comfortable because it, it does look like look it, this evidence we can't prove that it's an independent tradition and some Josephine scholars have published peer-reviewed writings where it looks like it's actually dependent on the texts where all our other manuscripts you know with the Christian interpolation involved in and I'll provide a, a, an article by Carrier talking called the the end of the Arabic testimonium again don't don't take everything Carrier says take it with a grain of, of salt because he's very bam, bombastic that's his style and you know he concludes things way beyond what the data suggests but he's I think he's correct that there is definitely um, realistic doubts about this to the point where I'm not comfortable using this as positive evidence there was actually a, count, uh, a partial and um, uninterpolated manuscript from the Arabic or Syriac, uh, Syrian that's preserved a, a text just like what Christian apologists have been saying this whole time. Take out the controversial bits and there you go. But actually, yeah, the, there is some evidence saying that this Arabic fragment um, as of 2008, claiming that it's based on an independent tradition, uh, does... There is some reason to think it was misinformed. Uh, really, the Arabic editions do not derive from an original text uh, of Josephus as was claimed prior to 2008. 
Um, they seem to be really just paraphrases of Eusebius, and there are scholarly arguments to that effect. I'll, I'll put in um, that article so you can see that and that sort of thing. So yeah, the Arabic uh, text is not something I use as positive proof that the testimony in Flavianum is in fact authentic. Um, okay, so that brings us to the final category of evidence for the testimonium. And this is it's uh, something that I think is successful, but I'm not going to count it here just for argument's sake. But it's the connection to the James passage in in uh, Book 20 that we're going to be looking at next. And this this is a lesser known text. It's it's not always focused on really the testimonium gets all the attention, and I think this this passage gets really neglected. But this is a lot less controversial. Controversial. There, there aren't any provable, to my mind, provable uh, interpolations at all. It's entirely authentic, I'm going to be arguing for. And if that's true, it presupposes the truth of an earlier mention of Jesus. Uh, and the only mention of Jesus that we have is this testimonium. So if the James passage is true, then probably, um, again, it's not an ironclad argument because Richard Carrier does try to argue that they can be totally independent. Even if the James passage is authentic, that doesn't prove the testimonium's authentic. It could just be an independent reference. But by far, the vast majority of Josephine scholars, people that actually specialize, secular scholars specializing in Josephus, including people that think the Josephus passage, the testimonium is fake, um, or we can't prove that it's authentic, and I'll, I'll provide a, a source on that, but Peter Kirby, I think, is his name. Uh, he's against it, but even he admits it seems more likely to be true. If the James passage is, in fact, true, it assumes or presupposes that the testimonium, that a prior passage in Josephus talks about Jesus Christ, and the only place where that could be is, is the testimonium, because he doesn't talk about Jesus anywhere else that we have extant today. Um, so I think that argument is successful, but I'm not going to even use that to establish the testimonium, but just be aware that that is an argument. So yeah, next we're going to get into the, um, the passage on James, because I think this is really strong evidence, and it's unfortunate it gets neglected. I, I actually am more interested in this topic than I am about the testimonium, because testimonium there's a lot more controversy you know you, a lot of it is language based uh, that a lot of the updates in 2014 are, are kind of language oh it's eusebian style or no it's unique to josephus style or no he's copying acts based on language and it's very speculative um you know mythicists will point to this or that thing and christians have ready responses and proof that they're wrong and vice versa christians will say no this is only josephus this only Josephus says this word, but then it's proven, mythicists will prove, no, actually, uh, Justin Martyr said this, or Eusebius said something like this, or, or look, it's in this language is in Acts, too. So it, it's speculative, and in my, when I was looking at the evidence, it, it always turns out to be wrong. There, there are provable instances where language that's said to be only, you know, on the Christian side, only Josephus talks about that, talks like this turns out to be false on the mythicist side oh only christians would talk like this um josephus wouldn't talk like this he would never say this 
complete rubbish. Again, Christians prove with actual examples. No, actually, he does say stuff like that. So that's why I said that the language evidence is just a wash. Um, but that, that's what a lot of the updates uh, from 2008 to 2014 were about. Um, but yeah, it just turns out to be a wash. It, it doesn't work. Um, the Arabic manuscript does work. That's neutralized. Yeah, why did I get on that tangent? I don't know. Anyway, so so yeah, we'll get on to, to James. But the testimonium in isolation. So I I did think, remember that argument from criteria, the criterion of dissimilarity makes it more probable that the testimonium is true. And I assigned 65 to 70% based on that type of argument or that category of argument. And I gave that example where um, Josephus is blaming Pilate more than Jews, and that would not be the case with second century or third century Christian interpolators. And I think that that kind of, that category of evidence does seem more persuasive to me. Um, but there's also the skeptical mythicist side where I gave the 55% uh, success rate to, you know, the lack of mention in early Christian church fathers. And it's, it's problematic to argue that they would, we would expect them to say it. But there does seem to be provable instances where, you know, the Christian apologists will say, oh, no, we have no expectation. It, it's just about the historicity and they don't question that. Um, but actually, early, you know, Eusebius and that sort of thing, they, they do use the quotes for purposes that Christian apologists will say they wouldn't. So, yeah, I think I give it to the skeptic. It, it's very speculative as to what we can prove their expectations are on these quoting a Josephus passage like this. Um, so I gave it 55%. So, yeah, in terms of an overall probability, that would be, okay, 60.31% probable that the testimonium passage in Josephus is not a total interpolation, but reflect insofar as it uh, reports a minimal historical Jesus, reports a partially authentic uh, passage by Flavius Josephus. That's Based on the evidence, that's what I uh, report for the testimonium. Um, but yeah, let, let's take a look at that second passage that always gets neglected and that I neglected and I actually think is stronger than the testimonium. That's from Antiquities of the Jews, book 20, chapter 9, uh, paragraph 1, and that's the passage about James. So let's get into that. First please, one thing to immediately mention here is Look, we, we don't really get a lot of details in this passage. Uh, this is one of the arguments for authenticity. It, it's just an aside. The focus is Ananus, the high priest. It's not on Jesus. It's not on James. They're just an off-the-cuff or the historical criterion of disinterest. And this is an argument in favor of its authenticity. Um, however, um, there's a skeptical thing here because in terms of the content, uh, we don't really get that much. Uh, we, we get... Okay, um, there was a guy that was killed, condemned by the Sanhedrin. Uh, his name was James, and he had a brother, a biological brother named Jesus, who was the Christ, or called Christ. Really, that's it. Um, what if a, skeptic, a radical lay skeptic wants to say, oh, well, that's referring to, there just happened to be another James. He also had a brother named Jesus, uh, and he claimed to be the Messiah, and that has nothing to do with the Jesus who had a brother named James who claimed to be the Messiah of Christianity. Well, you're you're right, the passage doesn't directly do that, but that's that's implausible, it doesn't make sense, that's a Im, very improbable and ridiculous um, way to go. If the passage, and no mythicists try to argue in this way, no, no one credible, like Richard Carrier, 
would say that's ridiculous. If it says what it says, then, and there's no interpolations, then yeah, that's obviously in the context we know that's Jesus Christ of the Christian, of the Christian faith, giving me my minimal historical Jesus. And we know that from the surrounding context. So from the from its linkage to the testimonium, its implication that there would be that other passage, and also the socio-cultural historical context of Christianity and just evaluating basic probabilities. Um, yeah, there's only one such Jesus that we know of who went around being Christ. That's the Jesus of the Christians. Um, just happens to have another brother who was condemned by the Sanhedrin. Uh, in the exact same time that Christian tradition says that James, the, the brother of the Lord, was killed and that sort of thing. So, yeah, that that's sort of a ridiculous objection. This is this is our minimal historical Jesus, if this passage is correct. Um, obviously, mythicists like Richard Carrier um, and, and that sort of thing say, well, here the, the debate with this passage is, is the entire passage that, that's relevant uh, entirely accurate? As a Christian, I say, yup, absolutely. And the mythicists, they don't say the entire passage is an interpolation. They know that that's ridiculous because of that argument, that that first positive argument, that it's so off the cuff. The criterion of disinterest proves that it, a, a Christian interpolator wouldn't have written this. It's, it's just so innocuous, and it's not the main focus of the, the text. It's just an off-the-cuff comment, as Bart Ehrman would say. So what they go for is, well, part of it is interpolated. Obviously, what part? Who was called Christ. That's the specific part. You know, Jesus was mentioned, James was mentioned, but in one way or the other, later Christians, uh, ancient Christian interpolators later on, interpolated this, who was the Christ? Because they're like, oh, Jesus and James, that must be um, Christ. And Richard Carrier makes an argument that instead of who is the Christ, it said Ben or, you know, that's the Hebrew way of saying son of Demonias, the high priest. Jesus, the son of Demonias. And it became corrupted. They took out the son of Demonias and uh, stuck in who was called the Christ um, as an innocent accidental mistake on the part of Christians, according to Carrier. It wasn't a deliberate thing. And it doesn't make sense for them to make a deliberate thing just here because there are... I think there's about 30 Jesuses mentioned where they could have done this type of thing and corrupted the text and put in who was the Christ and all this. But um, yeah, basically they get this because in the full context, uh, Josephus does mention in the same place, Jesus, the son of Damanias, the high priest. Um, and that's one of the evidences skeptics will give here. And, and we'll get to that in time. I'm not going to debunk that yet. But yeah, so that so that's sort of what we're looking at here. What what is the mythicist versus Christian claims? So I gave one argument already as to why it's authentic. Most histol uh, scholars, you know, mention the fact that look, Josephus is this criterion of dissimilarity. His emphasis isn't on Jesus or even James, um, but on this Ananus who is uh, deposed as high priest. That's what this whole thing is about. Um, John Meyer argues, quote-unquote, we have here only a passing, almost blasé reference to someone called James, whom Joseph obviously uh, Josephus obviously considers a minor character. He's mentioned only because his illegal execution causes Ananias to be deposed. Um, a, a second uh, standard traditional argument here is, look, Josephus' account of James being stoned is different. Criterion of dissimilarity, it's different from the account 
given by ancient early Christian church fathers like Hagasippus in the second century. Uh, it contradicts uh, what Christ, the, the way Christian tradition says J James was killed. Uh, so again, quoting Meyer, the traditional claim, quote unquote, according to Hagasippus, the scribes and Pharisees cast James down from the battlement of, Jerus of the Jerusalem temple. They begin to stone him, but are constrained by a priest. Finally, a laundryman clubs James to death. Um, now, James' martyrdom, says, uh, according to Hagasippus, was followed immediately by Vespasian's siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So, yeah, the, um, another couple of reasons. So, this is, uh, I'm taking this from Mike Lacona again. So, Mike Lacona provides five reasons, traditional reasons, as to why this passage is authentic. So, number one, it appears in all, every single one, without exception, the Greek manuscripts, without any notable variation. That's sort of a weak, I don't think that proves it. Same with the Testimonium, because, yes, the, the manuscripts we have are late. Um, though we do have early church fathers like Origen quoting from it, that's going to be an issue of contention. Some mythicists like Richard Carrier contend with that, um, but we're going to see it upholds. Second, the text provides a passing or blasé reference to James. So, okay, we've already covered that one. Third, no New Testament or early Christian writer wrote of James in a matter-of-fact way as the brother of Jesus. They always refer to him as the brother of the Lord or brother of the Savior. Um, you know, this, this type of thing in, in the early church fathers. So, again, that's another criterion of dissimilarity that indicates this passage is, in fact, written by a non-Christian, uh, someone not in the second century, someone in the first century, and that was Josephus. So, yeah, he goes on, quote-unquote, the words, the one called Christ, are neutral and appear to be employed to distinguish Jesus from others, um, others in his writings by the same name. So one thing with this um, that Michael Cohen picks up on, so the one called Christ, some Christian apologists uh, provided a positive reason that, look, in some manuscripts, it's actually negative. And uh, again, that's the criterion of dissimilarity and embarrassment. A, a, Christian, a later Christian would not have written about Jesus in a negative way. Um, but this is a controversial argument, and it fails, because there are manuscript, early manuscript traditions or early mentions of this passage that phrase it in this neutral way, as Mike Lacona says. So I don't think we can make that argument. It, it could, a neutral statement by saying he was called the Christ, um, could be the one called Christ, uh, could have been written by a Christian or, or might not have been. So uh, fourth, we've already covered this, so James' execution differs significantly from the other one. Fifth, uh, okay, here's one. So Josephus's account is short and a matter of fact compared to other writings. So that, this is going to be challenged. Some skeptics say, look, this passage is, mythicists will say this passage is too brief, and that doesn't match Josephus's style. Now, there, this is complete rubbish on the part of mythicists, but um, just be aware that this is a counter-argument. This actually turns into a counter-argument. The brevity of this James passage, according to mythicists like Carrier and Bob Price and that sort of thing, will say, well, this proves it's not authentic because it doesn't match Josephus likes to elaborate and give lengthy explanations as opposed to, you know, a short little brief thing. James, the brother of Jesus, who was called Christ, was thrown off the cliff, killed, or whatever. Um, okay, so another positive reason for authenticity is 
Look, in Josephus, there are at least five different people um, who are known to have the name of James. And Josephus is very careful, generally, to supply details um, to locate who these characters are in history. Um, since this is a common name, if Josephus referred only to James and certain others, it could be confusing as to what James meant here. Now, there's a counter. So a mythicist, Earl Doherty, writes, quote-unquote, in response to this argument, look, this inclusion of an identifying piece of information, say those arguing for authenticity, is something that Josephus does uh, for most of his characters. True enough. But this does not necessarily make the present phrase the original one. Josephus may have said something else, which Christian subsequently changed, or he may have written nothing. If he knew nothing else about James or chose to say nothing more, he would simply have used some equivalent, a certain James or someone named James. Um, and I think that this, this counter is, is a fair one uh, on the part of mythicists. This one does sort of take away this, this argument um, for authenticity um, in terms of at least if you're arguing for well, there's a partial interpolation, the identifier of this Jesus called the Christ, or even taking out the name Jesus, the brother of Jesus, or something like that. Although that view isn't taken. Most mythicists that are credible and publish in peer-reviewed studying this don't say that. It definitely mentions G James, the brother of Jesus, called the Christ. That's that's really the interpolation part, the called the Christ bit. He was called the Christ or something. Okay, so... Let's turn our attention now to specific arguments against authenticity that I haven't covered. So I covered the part that uh, Richard Carrier and, and most mythicists will say, look, there's only that, that in the Greek, toi legameno Christo, was called the Christ. That's the only controversial bit. And if you replace that with Jesus, the son of Damanius, who appears later in the text, um, well, that makes sense uh, as to what happened. Um, but actually... So now I'm going to refute this answer, but historicists and Josephus scholars say that this is a ridiculous thing to suppose. First of all, there's no proof of it. It's just speculation and ad hoc, really desperation on the part of mythicists here. Um, and let's be fair, this, this is not an improvement on the alternative hypothesis, really, right? Uh, that the entire reference to Jesus as the brother of James was inserted here. There's no reason to prefer this as opposed to that, um, on, on the assumptions of mythicism, at least. Also, the identification of Jesus happens in the supposedly second mention, and that's not natural. Um, so there's, there's an identifier of James as the brother of Jesus, and an identifier of Jesus as the, as the one called the Christ. So this is an argument against authenticity. Josephus is giving identifiers on top of identifiers, is what mythicists will like to say. Um, but again, this is this turns out, in point of fact, to be ridiculous. Josephus does do this. It's not an issue. This doesn't prove on a balance of probabilities that the passage is inauthentic or that part of the passage is inauthentic. Um, so here, here's another art, skeptical argument from mythicist uh, Earl Doherty, and he argues, why would Josephus think to make uh, Jesus paramount by placing Jesus before he talks about James, right? So the, the passage mentions Jesus first, and then mentions that James was his brother. So Doherty is saying, well, why? that reflects a Christian bias, right? They're putting Jesus first before James in recounting how the high priest Ananias had his downfall or something like that. 
Uh, but this argument, again, this is a failure on the part of mythicists. It's very weak and proven to be false in the subsequent writings of Josephus. You know, really the fact that the brother of Jesus, who is called the Christ, uh, is placed first in the accusative does not mean that the reference to Jesus is uh, given some kind of pride of place. This is modern mythicists reading in what they want to see in this passage, but that's not uh, what Josephus was doing necessarily as an ancient writer. So, yeah, all it is, is it's, it's simply one grammatically correct way of identifying James from Josephus's perspective. Um, so, yeah, th this is just the total failure on, on Doherty's part. Steve Mason, um, another says he explains look that josephus in another argument he says josephus would not have assumed uh his readership to understand the term christ uh in greek christos because pagans didn't have that so um a detailed jewish understanding like a jewish audience would and we know that josephus was not writing for a jewish audience so you know to the greek mind it simply meant anointed or wedded in a, in a way so, yeah, um, Mason makes an, ar uh, an argument against authenticity here by saying, look, for someone who did not know the Jewish tradition, the adjective wedded would sound very peculiar. Why would Josephus say that this man, Jesus, was, quote-unquote, the wedded or the anointed? And you, you can actually see the puzzlement of Greek-speaking or Gentile readers, uh, pagans, and their description of Christianity. This, this is why we get with Suetonius and Tacitus correcting it, the pagan mobs would call him Crestus. They would alter Christ to Crestus because that's a common slave name that made better sense to them rather than calling him Christus, Christos, who, the wedded, the anointed, They, without that common Jewish milieu or understanding that, that can't be assumed to a pagan audience. And yeah, the, the argument is, look, Josephus is usually sensitive to his audience and he, he pauses, in general, he pauses to explain unfamiliar terms or aspects of Jewish life that would otherwise appear strange to pagans who, who aren't familiar with that context. However, the look, the, the fact that the term Christ appears um, only here without much explanation can be explained by Josephus's bias because he was writing for the Flavian emperors under the reign of Domitian who is also another antichrist who's the emperor during which Revelation book of Revelation was written and Revelation has a very anti-imperial or emperor perspective for good reason Domitian was a, a bad boy he was a bugger um, he was persecuting Christians so just like uh, Nero before him so yeah there's a reason why we would not expect Josephus to elaborate. And he, he also had an emphasis on not wanting to stress, look, Jews are, they're a military threat. You know, when you claim someone a, a popular king or messiah, Josephus had this bias against stressing rebellion or military messiahs and that sort of thing. Um, but Jesus, it wouldn't have been an issue to call him the Christ because in, a, in effect... Everyone knew what Christians were about at this point in time. They're peaceful, they're weirdos, they're antisocial and treasonous, but they're not violent. They're not going out and killing, killing us in the streets and that sort of thing. They're not doing violent rebellions or riots. It wouldn't have been problematic for Josephus to mention Christ, the term Christ, with regard to Jesus. And so long as he doesn't really elaborate on the messianic uh, aspirations that entail 
overthrowing uh, the emperor, the rule of the emperors and that sort of thing. It, it wouldn't have been a touchy subject for them. So it, it does actually make sense, um, Josephus's use here. But yeah, uh, check, check out the sources. Uh, I'm going to provide some video sources by JP Holding and I think he really tackles this in some of his videos. He's got a series of seven short videos, like between two to ten minutes long each. Um, and he goes, he really tackles, you know, objection, counter objection, objection, counter objection, and that sort of thing. And he does really well on that front. Um, so, so yeah, I suggest you check those out for, for some of the things that I'm skipping over here. Here's another skeptical objection that's kind of weird. Um, so the, these passages are not in the table of contents of Josephus. It, he doesn't mention the testimonium or, or this James passage. Uh, and they say, well, therefore, it probably wasn't there. But this is just an utter failure on the part of Mephesus because there's a lot... His, his uh, thing wasn't meant to be all-inclusive, and we know that as a historically proven fact because he leaves out lots of stuff. He leaves out the passage about John the Baptist. Mephesus don't think that's an interpolation or that's uh, inauthentic. Uh, it leaves out the death of Herod, one of the most momentous uh, events in Jewish history of, of that era. Um, you know, Herod the Great's death. Um, so, yeah, that's not in the table of contents. But, um, yeah, so th this objection's a failure. It, it's totally irrelevant. It doesn't prove that the passage was inauthentic. Yeah, I think, I think the most substantial critique here out of, out of these traditional arguments is the, the one I, we just mentioned about from Steve Mason, where we would expect, he trying to say that we would expect Josephus to elaborate more on the, what the Christ meant. Uh, what uh, instead of just saying he was called the Christ and not giving a definition, yeah, I think I think I'll give that a, a actually I'll, I think I'll give that a success. But again, it's it's very weak because of the arguments I said against it. It's sort of reading in motivations for Josephus and that sort of thing, and and not taking into account um, the context around him as to why he might not elaborate on certain things. Um, but I'll, I'll be generous. I'll give 55% to the skeptic on that one. But yeah, other, apart from that, um, I don't find any of the other traditional skeptical arguments against authenticity to be persuasive on a, a balance of probabilities based on what we've gone over here and, and what I've seen in my other research that I haven't mentioned here. On the positive side, in terms of authenticity, I, I think that criterion of dissimilarity argument where, especially where I'm talking about, they don't interpolate and say brother of the Lord or brother brother of our Savior um, and it's just very direct and to the point. I do think that one's successful on a balance of probabilities. Also the, the difference between the accounts and that sort of thing. Although with the difference of the the accounts of how James was killed, there there is a skept a, an interesting mythicist comeback to that and they'll say, well look Obviously, this this type of argument goes against a wholesale interpolation, um, but at the same token, it doesn't necessarily rule out a partial interpolation. If he is talking about a James, and he was he died in this manner, but it's a different Jesus. He was the brother of Jesus, son of Damnias. Then it explains why there were restrictions on the the level of interpolation that an early ancient early Christian interpolator would have added in he would have kept most of it the same and then just added in called the christ or something like that um but still keeping the how he was how josephus originally said this 
James was killed, which is in contrast to early Christian church tradition about the actual James, the brother of Jesus Christ, the founder of Christianity. I, I think that, that could work. That does take a lot of the steam out of it. But um, really, the, on the criterion of dissimilarity, still, they, they would have added in the brother of the Lord or brother of the Savior, I think, on a balance of probability. So I, I'm willing to say, based on that argument, that's one positive success. I'm 65% certain that the passage is authentic with and complete with the, called the Christ bit and refers to our minimal historical Jesus. The other one um, is by John Meyer. It, it's the criterion of disinterest, where it's just the focus is on, on Ananias and it, it's just not, it's very blasé. It doesn't display any interest in James or even Jesus. And I think that this one is also successful about i'll give it 60 percent that it on a balance of probabilities that's sort of where i would put that okay so uh, i had a little bit of a technical glitch on my end so i i wanted originally to get into a little bit a couple of arguments based on specifics uh, updates specifically looking at richard carrier who's uh got the only peer-reviewed um material about jesus mythicism and looking at a review of that, specifically talking about the James passage, but uh, due to technical glitch, it looks like I've I've lost all that. Um, so that was uh, some good time spent. Um, yeah, so I'm I'm not going to re-record that, but uh, look out in the sources. At least look at those two articles because there's a rebuttal to Richard Carrier's position, and then Richard Carrier comes back and gives a response. So that's the skeptical mythicists get the last word. But even with Carrier getting the last word, I think you can see the desperate links that he's going to. I, I, I think it's revealed uh, that the James passage is, uh, the mythicist position on the James passage is untenable uh, for looking at that. But just basically the two things, out of everything in there, the two things I wanted to focus on were this claim that, oh, it's really talking about Jesus ben Damanias, the the you know, the, the rival for the high priest Ananias and uh, to put down his rival, they go after the, his, they kill his brother, James, James Ben Damanias and others, other supporters of this Jesus. So Carrier basically, and I don't know why I said it this way, but I did say it wrong. Carrier doesn't say that it said originally Josephus wrote Jesus Ben Damanias. He just said Jesus in that passage. Uh, and it was inferred because later on he refers to Jesus ben Damnias. So he says it was the same Jesus he had in mind. But again, that the Jesus ben Damnias is too far away from it to infer that and to make that assumption. Uh, and also, so the, the counter article argues, look, it, it's improbable. It's implausible and extremely ad hoc for Carrier to do this. And gives arguments as to why that would be the case. To And it, it says... In the context of the passage, Jesus called the Christ makes better sense of what's going on rather than Jesus ben Damnias uh, as a fellow, as a rival. That hypothesis is ad hoc. Uh, and he lists off in Appendix 1 a, a lot of all the assumptions that Carrier makes, non-evidenced assumptions and speculations which make his theory very convoluted. Uh, and it's implausible uh, based on what's going on in the passage itself. So yeah, take a look at that. I'm not going to get into that because I want to be done by the three and a half hour mark. The second major issue that I was addressing originally and now it's lost was the question of origin. Uh, so origin talks, mentions this passage and attributes it to Josephus. 
carrier says, uh-uh, no, actually, Origen screwed up. He messed up. He, when he was, he was quoting Hagasippus and thought he was talking about Josephus. And the review article that I'm going to link to, I, I went into great detail proving that that's probably not the case. And in fact, Origen is probably quoting Josephus. And there's a number of parallels between what Josephus does and, you know, and what Origen does. Both have six words, whereas Hegesippus has a law. He writes hagiography. He has a long, long, long uh, explanation and that sort of thing. It, it's nothing like what we have with the James passage in Josephus and Origen. So basically that's the argument, and, and you'll see that in the article. Origen is much close. It's vastly more probable, based on what's there, that he was copying Josephus directly rather than copying Hegesippus. And he does side-by-side -side comparisons of how Origen relates to Hegesippus versus Josephus and that sort of thing. So look out for that in the articles. I'm, I'm sorry that uh, I lost all of that recording. Um, but in a way, it's good because then we'll be done within my time frame of three and a half hours. So... Yeah, uh, let's get into the calculation then. Okay, so um, I, in the first place, I did make some mistakes when I was reporting the probability values for some of the arguments. Um, so it's just, uh, you know, I'm, I've got like 400 pages worth of notes here that I, I made in regards to mythicism. So I, I think I got lost track and was looking at a different argument when I said, so for example, I, I said the criterion of dissimilarity as a positive argument here. Uh, you know the brother of the Lord thing and that sort of that sort of thing. And I said 65%. It's actually 70% is the value I assigned for that evidence. Um, also, I'm going to remove that. I gave 60% for the criterion of dissimilarity of uh, sorry disinterest in the passage. Uh, now that the reason I'm removing that as a positive evidence in the calculation for for this for the James the authenticity of the James passages. That argument works if you're saying it's it's not an entire terp interpolation out of whole cloth, but I don't think it works against someone like Richard Carrier with the just the partial accidental interpolation. So uh, that argument is actually a failure against a more nuanced mythicist argument. Um, so that's why I'm removing that. So it's just the 70% for that for that criterion. Then there's the 55% on the mythicist side um, for that argument based on the Christ not elaborating on that uh, and that sort of thing. So those are the two factors that went into the calculation for this James passage that I think are actually provable on a balance of probabilities to say whether the passage is authentic or or not. It's an interpol partial interpolation or something like that. So yeah, doing that, calculating that out um, in Bayes, we come to an overall probability based on the all of the factors that are above 50% on the positive and negative side, and we get 65.63% probable that the James passage is not an interpolation. It is authentic in what the way I read it, mentioning Jesus Christ of the Christians and therefore proving a minimal historical Jesus existed. Um, now, in terms of the total for Josephus, so remember we had two passages. So we had the James passage, where we just got that 65.63% uh, combined total based on all the, the successful arguments. And we also had the testimonium. Based on the overall calculation there, it was about 60.31% that uh, the testimonium proves there was a minimal historical Jesus. So plugging those figures into those two uh, positive evidences for Josephus into Bayes, 
we get a total of 74.37% uh, probable overall that Josephus's two passages talking about Jesus are not interpolations. They're not later Christian interpolations. And when we combine that and multiply that by the, uh, remember I said it was 99% proven that Josephus is reliable or using eyewitness, reliable eyewitness sources and recounting the details if he said what what these passages say. And I was 95% certain that, Jose, that Josephus wrote the antiquities of the Jews in general as a whole. And then we times that by this 74.37% that we're certain these two passages uh, in terms of proving a minimal historical Jesus, minimal historical Jesus at least, are not later Christian interpolations. Um, either partially for the um, James passage um, and with the testimonium, well, there are partial, per, partial interpolations for that, um, but it's not an entire interpolation with respect to proving there was a minimal historical Jesus. Um, so multiply that 99 times 95% times 74.37, and we get a total of 69.95% proven that Josephus proves that there was a minimal historical Jesus based on the factors I've included here that I think are successful. So yeah, that's that's it for Josephus, and this is it for part one. Uh, we're at the 3.5 hour mark, so perfect. I'll, so what do we get overall from part one here? Um, so in, in terms of, in the first place, in the terms of calcul the calculation itself overall, so we came across, in evaluating the four to five ancient historians, uh, non-Christian secular historians, only two out of five were successful in, in the sense that we, overall, it was more probable than not that they do actually prove there was a minimal historical Jesus. So those were Tacitus, Cornelius Tacitus, the Roman historian writing about 115 to 117 AD in the Annals, uh, 1544 there, and now Josephus with the two passages that we've been evaluating for the past hour. Um, so what is the total? Based, based on these two uh, ancient histor historian, evidences from these two ancient historians, what's the total that a minimal historical Jesus existed? And when we plug that into Bayes to get the cumulative probability, we get a total of it's 77.04% proven, uh, based on my values assessing the, the evidences, that a minimal historical Jesus existed. And again, these are normative probability values. There's an element of subjectivity, uh, but I, I do, th so you're probably going to get your different, your own different values. That's fine. Um, but still, my values are within the reasonableness range. I think I've argued and provided sufficient reason for the values that I'm assigning to them, and, and or at the very least, I've presented what those reasons are to you, and you can evaluate for yourself if I'm, uh, you know, if I'm totally out to lunch or, or, or right or wrong or whatever. Um, but yeah, uh, so that's great. Uh, it's it's very probable, oh, close to 80% probable based on these evidences in isolation. So make no mistake, there's going to be other parts where we're evaluating more positive evidences, which will make it go even further up. There's also going to be podcasts where I'm evaluating, evaluating negative evidences because there are counter arguments that mythicists provide that they say prove Jesus probably didn't exist. So that 
if there if any of those are successful that will bring down the calculation from this 77 percent uh total that we're at right now just based on these analysis of these uh two ancient historic successful ancient historians that are successful in proving the minimal historical jesus did exist um, now, just before we go, a couple quick things. Um, number one, I wanted to correct something that I that's been bugging me. I, I always, obviously, in these podcasts, you always make minor little mistakes and stuff like that. I I tried to correct. There is two of them, especially with regards to what I said about Richard Carey. I think I corrected the one about Josephus. Uh, Richard Carey doesn't argue that it said Jesus uh, Ben Damnius in the critical James passage. It just said Jesus. And it can be assumed it was talking about Jesus Ben Damnius from the context, because that name is mentioned later on. Um, the second thing that I didn't correct uh, about Carrier is I said that Carrier doesn't uh, mention Tacitus was an interpolation. And I was basing that uh, on a comment that I read uh, back in 2018 in one of his articles from 2018. And it seemed to me that he was denying uh, that he he had changed his mind compared to the other articles where he argues for that. Um, however, in, in reevaluating that evidence, I realized I actually missed subsequent comments where he was where he reaffirmed he was just conceding that for the sake of argument. And he does, in fact, think that the Tacitus passage was an interpolation, but doesn't matter. I, I've argued successfully against that that option, anyways. So. And most tac most Tacitian scholars are against Carrier and his analysis there, so it's it's still not a problem. I addressed I addressed it either way. Uh, so yeah, I, I think just to that's it for for the show. Just to end off, um, I wanted to give a quote uh, about Tacitus and Richard Carrier's analysis uh, from from an atheist scholar that I know a lot of you respect, Bart Ehrman. Uh, so obviously he's written a book and he's proven that a minimal historical Jesus does in fact exist. Um, and he doesn't like mythicists. He gets in sort of a, a little spat with people like uh, Richard Carrier. Whereby uh, Bart, Bart Ehrman mentions in his book, he, he mentions the quote from Tacitus, which proves that uh, Jesus did in fact exist. And in his book, he, he says, look, quote unquote, I, Bart Ehrman, don't know of any trained classicists or scholars of ancient Rome who think that the reference to Jesus in Tacitus is a forgery. Uh, and then Carrier, in, in typical bombastic, over-the-top language, says, oh, you're a hack, this is sloppy work, this is irresponsible scholarship, and um, he, he basically points Bart Ehrman, haven't you heard of this guy, Herbert de W. Benario? Um, uh, Back in the 1960s, he wrote uh, something on Tacitus, um, and he says, you know, ch check that out. Um, so obviously, this caused Bart took Bart Ehrman a little aback. He he's not a Tacitian scholar. He fully admits, look, I'm I'm a biblical scholar. That this isn't my area of expertise, but still, I'm familiar with actual Tacitian experts um, and uh, Roman historians in general, and. None of them say this. They're all against Carrier as a, as a nutball. Uh, mythicists are known as nutballs when they deny Tacitus' uh, reference, as, as I mentioned when we addressed it. And so, taken aback, uh, Bart Ehrman reaches out to a world's expert, Dr. James Rives, uh, an ancient Roman historian and Tacitian scholar who's familiar with um, Tacitian scholarship um, as an area of 
specialty to to check into this you know what is this true are there is there scholars that uh, do deny this as an interpolation and basically he got back to Bart Ehrman and says uh, your, your friend is is ridiculous so in the first place Benario is a world's expert scholar um, and he wrote in the 1960s a, a good bibliographical source in the first place he says look Benario cites another article called by uh, Sam, a guy, a scholar named Samagni, and he's the one who makes this argument that Carrier's trying to appeal to that proves a, one scholar argues for a Tacitian interpolation here. However, this is the scholar Rive's response to Bart Ehrman. Number one, Samagni does argue that this is an interpolation, as Carrier claims, but only from another of Tacitus's works. The whole thing sounds to me like a house of cards, since the histories, book six, from which is the other work where this quote is allegedly from originally. So it's just the quote about Jesus was never an interpolation as though it never existed. This scholar, one singular scholar in the 60s said that uh, Tacitus wrote about Jesus in a different book than where it is now, book six instead of 15. Oh, well, who cares, even if true. Um, but... Again, book six doesn't exist. So this is just all sheer speculation that makes no proof at all. It's just them saying it. And finally, Rives finishes off number three, uh, speaking to Bart. This is clearly a minority opinion since I've never even encountered it before Before you brought it up to me and I looked into it. Um, so, yeah, that, that was his initial response. Bart Ehrman... Uh, also gets back in touch with him because um, Carrier also sent him two quick articles. Um, so he's and this again, it's confirming in these articles. He said Magni didn't say that the reference to Christ was a whole cloth interpolation, as though Tacitus never wrote about Jesus to begin with, or this this passage to begin with. It's just oh well, it was in a different book than it is now, book six, not book fifteen. That's all that this scholar is, is arguing for, this um, Tacitian scholar argues for. But there's also a second article Richard Carrier provides to Bart. It's by a guy named Coesterman. Um, he's an editor of Tacitus as well. And basically, Coesterman, he argues that Tacitus made a mistake in associating the Christiani with Christ. But basically, this guy doesn't say anything about the reference to Christ not having been written by Tacitus himself. Um, so, yeah, Richard Carrier, he's doing he's the one doing sloppy scholarship here. He's, he's not he's, he's making convoluted arguments and putting things into the mouths of people that they didn't actually say to try and make a point just to get rid of this um, reference, clear reference and proof that Jesus did in fact exist, or this Christus, the founder of the Christian faith, who we know from elsewhere was Jesus. So yeah, uh, this, this is his response, quote unquote, um, Rives responds back to Bartman, there may be scholars who've argued that the reference to Christ is a later interpolation into the text, but neither of these two did that Carrier uses as proof. And I certainly don't know of any others as an expert Tacitian scholar and Roman historian in the field. So yeah, Bart Ehrman ends off. I, I think that's enough to settle this this dispute with Bart Ehrman. I'm not the irresponsible one or the sloppy one. It seems that Carrier is. Um, so yeah, that just wanted to end off with that because I do think that is indicative of, of Carrier's research. If 
it sounds great on the surface if you just read Carrier, if, if all you know is you just read through what he gives you. Um, and I, I definitely recommend that you do read his stuff. I'm not saying it's total garbage and does, isn't worthy of attention, even by scholars. Of course it is. Um, but if you're a lay person like me and, and that, you can't just mindlessly believe whatever he tells you to believe. There are fudge factors in his things. If Unless you see both sides, then you don't have that intellectual right to opinion and you will be bamboozled. So I think that you really need to look into both sides. And this, I wanted to read this incident between this dispute between him and Bart Ehrman where Bart Ehrman didn't know he was a layman when it came to this issue. And he actually checked in with Tacitine scholars and revealed, yeah, Richard Carrier's fudging what he's telling you. He's not telling you the whole truth or or kind of fudging the data to make it say something that it really isn't. These scholars never said that the Tacitus didn't write about Jesus or, or this Christus figure. Write that passage. Um, so, yeah, uh, that's how I'll end it off here. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. And uh, I'll get back. Uh, we'll do part two. I'll finish off any extra biblical non-Christian sources and archaeological sources. If we do a part three, and when we get to part three, I'll, then I'll start flipping it and looking at negative evidences um, against the truth of Christianity, and, and we'll take it from there. Again, I'm going to post these on an ad hoc basis whenever I get a chance, so no idea when part two will come out, but um, maybe it'll be in the fall sometime, or or who knows. Yeah. Um, so yeah, have a great week, everyone, and I hope you hope you guys enjoy. Please check out the sources, and I'll provide a document in the sources uh, with my calculations, so you can kind of make sense of that outside of an audio format, but actually look and see what numbers I gave to what factors uh, in part one here. So, all right, have a great week. Bye bye. P.S. Uh, sorry, uh, quick end note. Just wanted to add that I made a mistake when I was calculating the Josephus. Uh, the calculation for Josephus because I combined uh, the testimonium not being an interpolation and the uh, James passage not being an interpolation. That was a, that was a mathematical mistake. I should have kept them separate. So uh, I'm not going to go over it again here, but just make sure to check out the document where I calculated out correctly and, and you'll see the map, my, uh, my math there. So yeah, sorry about that for, for that mistake, but have a good week. All right. Bye-bye.